brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 45 of the Former Action Guys podcast, and I'm your host, Justin Kramer. This week I have on the episode, uh, or on the show, Levi Slife and Quentin Brown. They have both been guests before. Levi was on episode 14, and uh, Brown was on episode 18. They both were JTACs in the Marine Corps, um, and both of them got out and now are firefighters. Levi is a federal firefighter, and Quentin works for three different, actually, fire uh, agencies in Ohio. So this episode focuses some, a little bit of military stuff at the beginning, but then we roll right into fire department stuff, and it's a really good episode for anyone that's thinking about getting out of the military and going to become a firefighter, or you're just thinking about being a firefighter in general. We go through some of the hiring process on the federal side and the local side for like Ohio, which is kind of a general, uh, will hopefully give you some general information for uh, agencies across the country. And then we, we talk about some of the different calls they've gone on and the, and the issues that they've had. Um, and at the, kind of towards the end, we talked just a little bit about a coronavirus and how it's affected them. And because I didn't want to go too crazy about it. I know everybody's getting tired of hearing about it. So I just wanted to make sure we touched on it a little bit. But that's what we got going on today. Um, yeah. And hey, we just hit, I hit... Um, what are 20,000, over 20,000 downloads. I, th- I don't know if I mentioned on the last podcast. Um, so thanks everyone that's been downloading and who have subscribed to me on either uh, YouTube or Spotify or Apple Podcasts, stuff like that. Please, if you have the opportunity, like on Apple Podcasts or YouTube, leave a comment or or uh, leave a review. I love to see that. I'm going to start reading those off and stuff again. Um, I'm also going to be starting my my website for, specifically for this page, formeractionguys.com. I just have to build it up now. I've already got the domain and everything like that. But eventually, I'm going to have a dedicated website for just this, this um, podcast. So... But anyway, if you're not watching this video, then make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel, uh, Former Action Guys Podcast. Um, make sure you give a like and leave comments on your favorite episodes. Um, yeah, and make sure to check out my website, jkramergraphics.com, and my Instagram page, at jkramergraphics, which just hit 10,000 followers. So thank you for that, uh, for those that are out there. Again, that's jkramergraphics.com and at jkramergraphics on Instagram. So enjoy the episode. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. 
A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. All right. Well, let's kick this pig. Welcome back to the show, both of you guys. Uh, so today, who do we got? We got Levi Slife and we got uh, Quentin Brown on. And you guys were both on um, previously. I don't, I'm looking up the numbers right now, which episodes, unless you know it offhand. Uh, but you guys were both on here previously. So if, if you haven't seen either one of these, the people that are watching, if you haven't seen either one of these, uh, Levi was on episode 14. And then uh, Quentin was on 18. So go back and listen to those episodes. And that gives a really detailed uh, version of their careers in the Marine Corps. But I would, I know some people aren't going to go back uh, and listen to those. And I know some people just started watching this podcast when it came up on YouTube. So if you could, starting with, uh, I guess, Levi, since you're on, on my left here, if you want to go ahead and give like a quick synopsis of your, your time in the Marine Corps, like when you joined the different units you were with and the different positions you held, and then what you do now, and then we'll jump over to Quentin and uh, go from there. Yeah. Uh, so again, I'm Levi Slife. I was a uh, 0861 fire support man in the Marine Corps. I joined in 2007. Uh, I got out in 2015. I made my way up to be a JFO and then a JTAC. Um, I did a uh, couple of 31st MUs, uh, both as a JFO and a JTAC, and then I went to Afghanistan once as a JFO and twice as a JTAC, uh, and that I spent all my time with the 11th Marine Regiment, the good big blue diamond, first Mardiv, uh, and then I got out, what part, did some contracting for a little what, bit. And sorry, go ahead. Sorry, real quick, what parts of Afghanistan were you in? I was at RC Southwest the whole time. Uh, I was with two one down in Garmsir. Uh, I was with two five in uh, Muzikalax, and me and Quinn both were there uh, together uh, in Muzikala Kajaki area. And then mm-hmm. uh, my third time there, I worked for an advisor team on Camp Leatherneck. Okay. And then um, and then what do you do now? Uh, right now, I am a federal firefighter on Fort Sill. Okay. And then, Quentin, if you want to go ahead and give us uh, your rundown. Uh, so, Quentin Brown uh, got out as a staff sergeant, um, Paris Island grad. Um <laughs> Uh, Paris Island grad. Fifth Anglico in Okinawa, Japan, Iraq, uh, once. Um, uh, let's see. Then I went to 11th Marines, uh, to 511, then went to, uh, uh, TACP school at PAC, uh, went to third LAR, deployed to Afghanistan with them. Um, then came back, uh, went to two five retreat hell with Levi uh, deployed to Afghan with him and then, uh, came back, went to, um, Marsoc, uh, first MSASOB and then first MSOB and we deployed to, uh, Guam and, uh, then shortly thereafter I got out. So. All right. Um, so when you guys were both together, were, did you guys go to Garmsir together or were you guys in Musakela together? We were in Musakela together. Okay. Um, so I never made it up to Musakela. I heard it's a really shitty spot, though. What years were you guys there? Or what year were you guys there? Yeah, you didn't miss much. We were there in uh, 2012. Okay. 
Yeah, I, so that was in between. That was in, in between my deployments too, and that would have been. So you did you guys replace three two? Uh, no, we replaced two four. Okay, okay. Because I remember, um, I don't know if you knew. Well, you guys were all you guys were West Coast guys. Three two was out there in two thousand ten, two thousand eleven, and uh, that's when the uh, whole sniper thing was going on. Um, they were smoking all kinds of dudes with their snipers, and then the whole pissing on the bodies thing happened and kind of tarnish their their uh achievements i guess i to i think to combat marines and you guys can expand on this if you want i don't think it really tarnished it in, in our eyes um but for the general public obviously it was something that wasn't good for them to see that you know i guess it's just uh opening people's eyes to how shitty combat is and how like people deal with like the stresses of being over there um was the musicala they had some pretty good so they had their their fighters there were pretty good about using like actual tactics rather than just hit and run, right? Or did you guys experience that at all, Quentin? Uh, yeah, I mean their their tactics were pretty decent. Um, I think the one thing the the one thing that surprised me the most was we we're actually at the Kajaki Dam and they used an airburst mortar on us. And uh, I mean, thank God. They, oh shit! They were, no way. Yeah, they 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 were close enough to kind of give you the uh heebie-jeebies there but uh far away enough to where you know we we weren't freaking out too much about it but it was definitely one of those things like okay we should probably move so yeah i i I took idf when i was in iraq that was like the only like real anything that happened while i was there because i was on tq the whole time um and then my second deployment to afghanistan when we flew into uh leatherneck Actually, we were there for like an hour. You know, we had just gotten there. They're like, hey, here's your transient tent you're going to sleep in. And everyone's getting ready to go get chow because, you know, we've been traveling. Now we want to go get some food. And uh, we started taking incoming there. I think those were rockets, though, not mortars. But it's weird, like the first time. So in Iraq, the first time that we got mortared, I was like, oh, shit. You know, you're like super like, oh, crap. Like, this is crazy, you know. And then after a while, you get you, you get kind of used to it. And I remember when Leatherneck got rocketed while we were there, one of the lieutenants was like, oh, crap. Like, you know, this is happening. Should we go to the bunker? And I'm like, dude, that's on the other side of the base. Like, we're, we're still going to walk to chow. Like, this is this will be over in just a minute. Like, the alarms are going off, but it'll be over in just a minute. But it's just funny how you kind of get used to, uh, you know, shitty stuff like that. that I don't know. How, did chance, you? Uh, 2013, spring of 13, was it? Yeah, it was actually. I got there in March or April of 13. Yeah, it would have been April of 13 because I was on the advisor team there. And I remember I woke up and I, was, I, had, to, I had to pee and I heard the alarms. And I was like, oh, man, I can't go outside now. Then they're going to make me get in a bunker. I won't be able to go pee. And uh, I'm looking around my my little shoe that I live in there, my little housing, my my you know shipping container turned into a housing unit. And of course, being the good marine that I was, I'd taken all my trash out, so I had no empty bottles or anything. And I remember just sitting there, just miserable, trying to wait it out, wait it out. And then eventually, somebody came through the door, open, it's like, yeah, I had to get in the bunker. And so I had to stand in the bunker with all all the CBs. And there's you know probably half a dozen to a dozen females there because I was gonna just go pee in the corner. But nope, oh, can't do that. And so can't it, do that. It was it was probably the longest forty five minutes of my adult life, you know. Oh yeah, we didn't get in the bunker. We were just over. No, you know, when you're in the transient tents, nobody's nobody, nobody cares nobody about cares. you over there. It's that it's up to you to do your own thing. Uh, it was funny though. Well, it wasn't really. It's interesting. I had a lieutenant that I had a lieutenant that hadn't deployed yet. This is his first deployment, 
And when we landed on the tarmac in, in Leatherneck, um, we were coming off the bird and we were walking and there was like multiple, multiple um, medevac helicopters took off, probably like four or five. And I was like, oh shit, that's not good. And he, he saw it. And he's like, well, maybe they're just training. And I'm like, bro, we're in Afghanistan. Like the training's done. Like this is for real, you know? And then an hour later, then we started getting the rocket attack and stuff. So um, luckily for me, man, that wasn't two things I never had to experience like in depth was IDF attacks. Like none of it was um, consistent or happening a lot or grenade attacks. I've heard some areas had a, a real issues with grenade attacks. Did you guys experience that at all up in uh, Musa Kayla when you were working together? I'll let you take that one first there, Q. Uh, I don't remember hearing about grenade attacks, but we, we they took a pretty heavy V-bid at, uh, at Musa Kayla, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly. I think it was V-bid a and V-bid. Suicide and vest, they, yeah. yeah, suicide vest and then. I want to say there was some small arms fire, but it wasn't like an overwhelming type thing. I never got the the suicide vest. Like the people that we had, a, when I was in Marja, I think within the first 24 hours that I was there, um, we had a guy try to detonate a suicide vest and an Afghan soldier shot him. And um, his, his vest actually malfunctioned when he tried to detonate it and he ended up burning himself to death, you know? So that's cool. Um, but I just, I, I don't get that mentality, man. I don't think I could, you think you could find a Marine? Like if we use tactics like that, you think, did you think there's dudes that you knew in the Marine Corps that'd be like, yeah, I'd put on the suicide vest. I'd do it for, for my country. So, so I actually have a theory about that. Um, and now <laughs> I, I'll just go ahead for everybody listening. I'll let you know that when you hear me call, uh, Quentin, when you hear me call him Skidmark, that was his call sign for the longest time. That's what I called him for years. That's what I, that's what he saved in my phone as. So. Bear, bear with me, Ed. It's, 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 not, it's not me being mean. That was somebody else being mean to him. Um, but <laughs> Keeping uh, it going. Yeah, right, dude. I'm <laughs> telling you. But um, I have a theory about that. And I, my theory is that when you have – when you live in just a really, really bad part of the world, just like just – you live in a, in a shithole and you have nothing going for your life really. I mean these guys – I'm sure it was the same up in the margin, but down in uh, – in, uh, Garms here, these guys didn't know how old they were. They're like, ah, hmm. I think I'm 40 years old because it didn't matter. Yeah. They just went out, worked the field, came home, you know, made dinner and did the same thing the next day. So I have a theory about that, that you don't really find people that are willing to do that in the really, like, there's nobody from, you know, the really nice parts of Saudi Arabia or Oman or whatever that are willing to do that. And you couple that with this extreme religion that from the day you're born, everything around you is the religion. It's not like here in America where, I mean, we got Jedi as a, as a religion. You know, we got everything under the sun. Yeah. You yeah. worship, you know, the lizard people to Buddha, to Allah, to God. It doesn't matter. Um, but I think when you're indoctrinated in it and you couple that with just a really crappy place to be, I think that's that's really what drives them because – we found out um, with 2-5 doing ops down there that a lot of those guys valued their life a lot more than we kind of gave them credit for. They didn't want to come shoot at us a whole lot. They didn't want to shoot at the tanks because they kept saying, well, no, they'll kill us. Don't shoot the tanks. The tanks will kill you. And uh, they were, you know, the we listened to them over ICOM. The leaders were getting frustrated with their fighters because the fighters didn't want to go fight the tanks because the tanks would kill them. You know, so. So you, you guys were using tanks out there? Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Like oh, yeah. like pretty like actually using them, or were they mostly for Overwatch? 
Um, so for I can speak for Golf Company. We would go out and do helo raids, and the tanks would meet us out there with our with our, our mobile section, which was a bit just our cat team. Um, and we used the tanks to put holes in walls. We used the tanks to basically clear lanes for us. We'd, we'd just mm-hmm. have the tank drive through the field, and we'd walk in the tracks behind it and sweep for IDs. Um, fun fact, uh, I ran a Kazvac 9-line, or a, a, a medevac, excuse me. We had a medevac come in. I, was, I landed the, the aircraft. And then on the same frequency, one of the other facts that was in one of the tanks ran a CAS nine line with the Cobras that were providing escort for the dust off bird because uh, they were getting RPG shot at them. We did it all while like I'm bringing the aircraft out of the zone and this dude is on the same frequency talking to the escorts, putting a hellfire into a building. So, well, yeah. How, I mean, how confusing How confusing was that to talk on the – you guys were both using the same net? Well, yeah, so, so the very, very short version of what happened was we is a very, very dangerous area, and we had a dude, his appendix ruptured, of all things, right? Mm. So um, we popped, like, three different colors of smoke, and, you know, to try and confuse them, I had the Cobras doing suppressing fires uh, in front of this village where we knew that there was a lot of, we'd been taking contact in there all day, and as the helicopters are leaving, um, we see a couple little black puffs behind the tail rotor, which... It's not at all like the movies. I'd never seen a RPG shot at a helicopter before, but it's not like the movies where you get a nice white smoke trail. It's just, if I hadn't been looking, I wouldn't have seen it, you know. Um, but the helicopter's taking off, and I see it, so I'm telling them, hey, dust off, you're taking RPG fire for 7 o'clock. They start moving, and the Cobras said, hey, where's it come from? And I told them, I don't know. I need you to start scanning around. And the fact with the tanks pops on my Kazvac frequency and goes, hey, we have PID on the shooter. He's reloading. We can't range him with the tank right now, or or some. There's a reason the tank couldn't shoot him. I don't know what it was. I said, and so I just said, "Hey, dust off, continue uh, break in as need be." But uh, Driftwood, whatever his call sign was, has uh, brief stack mark control at this time. And then he just ran the attack on the with the Cobras on the medevac frequency and passed him back over to me. And everybody went on their merry way. That's sick because the uh, tanks actually have a really good. Their sighting system is really good, and the accuracy of their. Yeah. Uh, of their grids that they can pull their location, the target location data is like super accurate, even though it's, I don't think it's like certified to be like as accurate as some of our targeting programs and stuff like that, but it's really accurate. So that's actually not a bad platform to be uh, passing grids um, or getting your target location data from. Uh, did you also Q, did you guys use the tanks out where, and what company were you with? So I was with uh, echo company and uh, fun fact, actually. Uh, so I work for the Cleveland fire department and one of our Cleveland firefighters was with First Tanks, the guys that supported Levi's company. Oh, so just a little nice. piece of intel there. Small world. Right. And uh, <clears throat> so we we didn't actually use tanks like golf company used tanks. We more so worked with them um, during the one time um, during the uh, Kajaki Dam operations when uh, I think it was both Echo and Golf Company uh, during those ops. Um, and I mean, we were, I mean, they were, the tanks were side by side with us. I mean, I, yeah. I remember, um, we would actually, our, our like mobile section was doing kind of almost patrols with the tanks and then, you know, the tanks would kind of flex to go support the different platoons that were getting into it. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not sure how much you guys keep up with the news. I'm sure you, I'm sure you're fully aware though. But starting with UQ, what do you think about the Marine Corps deciding to pull tanks from you know our one of our assets? 
how do I politely say this? Uh, you don't have to be polite. <laughs> I, I think it's not the best of ideas. And uh, it, it, I mean, it's it's literally just making the Marine Corps less lethal. I mean, that's that's all it's doing. You know, just I think I, I think some of the justification that people are using is that they're trying to thin out the Marine Corps. They're trying to make it a smaller, more lethal force uh, that's more agile. And the I, I think that the thinking is how are you going how how are you realistically going to use tanks if you're fighting like china in the pacific on on all these different islands like is that something you're actually going to do and i mean i guess you have people that'll argue both both ways that it's good and bad i personally have never never used uh tanks we had tanks come out and they would sit up on um uh i don't remember the name of the hilltop in sangin there was a, over on the hilltop in sangin uh, it called i don't remember anyway they would sit over there on on overwatch basically and just use their sites to see if they could find anything but i never really had any one-on-one or any kind of like hands-on experience with them um so i can i can kind of see where they're coming from where they want to get rid of them because it seems like we're maintaining an asset that we're not utilizing but i also see the the i I also see the argument that it's a short-sighted decision that we're thinking about what's happening right now and what's not not what's going to happen in like 20 or 30 years from now so i mean uh what do you think about that levi huh go ahead go ahead i I, I think there's kind of two schools of thoughts with it um you're you guys you're absolutely right on both sides of that um i mean the marine corps was originally built to be expeditionary uh you look you look back to some of our pubs we we had the small wars manual the marine corps was meant to just fight that the banana wars the boxer rebellion it, the, you know the small little hey let's go in there let's you know let's kick their hornet's nest a little bit let's put some people in their place and then we'll leave and be gone uh but i think with the, the the global war on terror we've become you know a the army light if that makes sense uh where mm-hmm. we're an occupying force that's sitting there and tanks really do have a um a, a role there again i i was one of those guys always you know thought the tankers were kind of goofy like you know they're they're more pogue than i am sort of sort of thing until we started using them and uh i i saw the capability that they bring i mean you watch a tank hit four ieds in one day and nothing happens and it takes a direct hit from an rpg and nothing happens you know it's it's uh it's it's pretty cool to see but at the same time if if the marine corps is trying to get back to being expeditionary and getting out of this you know army light mindset you know, a tanks that you can't fit a whole lot of tanks on a boat. And even if you can, how you get into mm-hmm. shore, you, you got the LCAC. And, and at that point, we're really not expeditionary with them. So I could go either way on it. I think that, I think it's a, it's a rash decision to just cut them completely. Um, but I, I could be okay with downsizing uh, because yeah. I will say it. I'm not trying to be polite. Uh, I work on an army installation. I see the army daily. I went to the JCAS symposium where all the NATO countries are there. The army sucks. The army is, is good at like a few <laughs> okay. things and their soft, their soft community is awesome. The Rangers mm-hmm. are good, but they're, they're everyday units. I mean, it's, it's a crapshoot on whether you're gonna, whether you're gonna roll the snake eyes or whether you're gonna roll sevens and 11s, you know, it's, it really is. Um, so, and, and you're not biased it's, at all either, you know, well, well, so I went up to NTC, which is, you know, the Army's version of, of the 29 mm-hmm. Palms, CACs, whatever. I went up there as a guest OCT, so basically a guest evaluator for the Air Force JTACs uh, twice. And what I saw from the units that were there was less than impressive. Uh, the one example I'll give, and then I'll shut up, I watched an entire striker. like an, uh, it, was a, it was an armor 
uh, unit that was out there and watched an entire striker company get killed by two BMPs in a ZSU. Oh, really? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Like, like, because they were all oriented to the east, and the BMP and the ZSU came from the west. And mm-hmm. they couldn't figure out why all their miles gear was going off, and nobody thought to look behind them and look at these two or three Russian vehicles just sitting, sitting there. there. And they're just sitting there getting smoke from behind. I, uh, yeah, and, I worked with the things f- like that just kind of, you know, anyway. I know, I, I know what you're saying. I worked with the 501st at uh, JRTC down in uh, Fort Polk, and um, they were – I won't say that they were – I was I was surprised by some of the skills that they didn't have. Like I had my comm chief. I was like, "Hey man, while we're in Louisiana, you're gonna set up a field expedient antenna, and I want you to shoot an unamplified, you know, message back to Camp Pendleton, and we'll have our guys on that side of the, uh, do radio checks. That way, we can one get in contact with command, and two exercise our capabilities, you know, and work on our HF stuff. And we were setting this antenna up. And these soldiers came over and it was just like blowing their mind. They're like, what are you guys doing? We're like, oh, we're building an antenna to shoot back and, you know, an unamplified radio call back to California. And they're just like, what? And um, I was like, you know what? Hey, guys, like, you know, we're out here and my guys are all fully capable. So if you guys want to learn about this, come tomorrow and we'll, we'll give you guys a class. And dude, the next day, like 40 people showed up, like 40 guys all rolled in. We're like, and, and good on them. And, and I'm glad that they took interest in it. I was just well, really surprised by, for, you know, to, yeah, to exactly. teach each other skills that we may or may not have. Yeah. They, all my guys on, cause I was with first thing Luco at the time, my guys got assigned to their like recce units and their like sniper units and stuff like that. And like, they were blown away by us having the tablets, you know, and doing target stuff with that and planning with the tablets and I don't know. It was just kind of interesting working with the army because I've never really, I guess that was the closest I've ever worked like hand in hand with them. I never, we were always adjacent to them rather than being embedded with them. So did you guys ever work with them in Afghanistan? We had psyops guys from the army with us. Mm, um, yeah. But that was, that was the close and that between that and the medevac, that's the closest I've ever been working with the army in country. Okay. What about you, Q? Did you, guys, you ever work with the Army? Um, so, yeah, I worked. we worked with, actually, a striker brigade uh, when I was in 5th Anglico. We, we were at NTC there. Um, and, again, my, 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 my experience was very similar to Levi's. Um, they, they actually took a lot of casualties in training, like actual real-world casualties. Basically, I mean, they were running into each other. I mean, one guy got taken out by the drop door. It hit him and, and, and messed him up pretty good. I mean, just crazy stuff that they were doing. Um, we worked with some psyops when I was in Iraq um, at Al Qaim with a military transition team. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that was it. And you know, the the soldiers we had with us in Iraq those those dudes were solid, real good dudes. Um, the the striker brigade when I was at NTC. Not so much. So, uh, but you know, dust off, they were fantastic. Never had a problem with them. Uh, Oh yeah. They they flew real well for us. So for sure. Did you do a lot of, when you were over at Raider battalion, did you do a lot of joint training there? Uh, not really. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think now. Um, Some units may uh, they did some joint stuff when we were in Guam. Actually, um, mm. we actually did they they 
some of the guys did a little, I guess, meet and greet with uh, Chinese soldiers or something like that. It was really, really, oh, really weird. Yeah. I, I, the only reason I remember that is because the guys were coming into where we had our little armory at Guam, and they were like, all right, strip your weapons of all optics, of all gear, you know, just bare bones out there. And I'm like, I mean, I'm pretty sure they know what we have. <laughs> like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, they know, know our optics. <laughs> so, but it, yeah, it was just a weird thing. But yeah, we didn't we didn't do a whole lot of joint stuff um, when I was with Marsoc. We actually did more joint stuff when I was uh, with Fifth Anglico, surprisingly. So, mm. okay, um, yeah, I, I remember on my first Mew as we were going out to Hawaii, um, there was some kind of exercise going on that a lot of Pacific nations were partnered, you know, that were coming in to do. And we invited, I think we invited the Chinese to participate. And then they came in and was trying to gather intel the whole time. So they basically kicked them out or something. It was something along those lines. I don't remember the specifics of it, but it was like one of those like, geez, guys, like we're trying to, (laughs) you know, extend a hand of like, hey, we don't want to all be, you know, we don't want it to be like the Cold War you know, but, and then you guys come in and try to spy, like you're using electronic surveillance and stuff like that. Like get the hell out of here. Um, yeah, that's Good pretty interesting stuff. So let's, uh, how, when did you guys meet? Did you guys meet when you went to fifth Marines or were you guys in like 11th Marines together? You go ahead and take that one. Q. Um, so we actually met right before we all went to two five. Um, Let's see. I'm trying to remember the circle. Okay, so we're we're actually kind of all doing the. I was teaching the JTAC primer at um, at uh, First Marine Division FSCC, and Levi, you have to remind me. Did, were you coming through as I was teaching, or had you already? Been? I had just come out of TACP school. Okay, so he I'm had just brand, brand new, still wet behind the ears. So, right. so you brought him under your wing. And you're like, come here, <laughs> yes. let me teach you the way. Yes, don't let him be humble about it. He taught uh, me a lot of stuff. So it was actually him and Defleto. We all got assigned to two five. Um, I was actually supposed to go with, I want to say, M- oh, well, MLG. I was supposed to go with, um, but somebody yeah. ended up kind of screwing the pooch, and. Uh, top Cabral took him out of the two five deployment and replaced me on that one. So then we all went to two five together, uh, did a lot of training there together because, you know, for a little while they, they, it seemed as though they didn't really know what to do with us. Um, and they hadn't assigned us to companies yet. So it was kind of a roll of the dice who was going to go where. So we got to do a lot of training, um, just kind of the three of us, um, the air officer, uh, set, set up some, some, training just for us which was really cool um and then we got assigned to the companies and yeah so we've known each other since i think that was yeah it was 11 was it 11 so yeah yeah the 11 right november of 11 is when we went over there because uh we were with two five when i got arrested by san Bernardino county sheriff's department for not passing a police car at two o'clock in the morning (laughs) for not passing him (laughs) Yeah, the, super long story short, I was coming back from Vegas because my now wife uh, lived up there, and I went up there for Thanksgiving to have Thanksgiving with her, and um, I was coming back, and I was taking a side highway to avoid all the traffic on Interstate 15, and uh, I was I was doing like 90 miles an hour down this highway, and uh, I hit a stop sign and turned to another highway, and I was like coming into a town, so I slowed down, and a sheriff car pulled out in front of me. It's like 2 o'clock in the morning, and... Um, 
they were only doing like 35 miles an hour. I gained it on pretty quick at 50. So I slowed down and just paced behind them. They pulled off the road, flipped around and lit me up. And they told me that it was suspicious. I went past their police car. Uh, I got put in handcuffs for having all my gear and everything in the back. We were going to Mojave Viper that, that like that Monday morning. I was on my way to Pendleton for that. So yeah. Did you actually anyway. receive any charges for that or were you just being harassed? No, no, they just, they were just, they were fishing. They were looking for stuff. They rifled through my truck, uh, went through all my gear. Dude. Uh, they, dude, gave me a whole spiel about how uh, the speed limit on any state highway in America is 55 miles an hour, 55 miles an hour, and I should know that. And, it, dude, it's just me in handcuffs on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere with two guys. I'm not going to argue with them, even though we all know yeah. that's not correct. Yeah, that's fucked up. No, but you're you're right though. It, it's easier just to like if you understand the situation, it's easier just to get through it and then deal with it on the back end if you need to. But that's man, fucking harassment. I think, I think if I'm all about police. Let's I'll put it out there. Or, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say I'm I'm pro police and stuff like that. I think that we need police officers and stuff like that. But you hear stuff, you hear situations like that, and I and make it. It's more understanding when people have a bad taste in their mouth about dealing with police officers when, you know, they go through something like that. Well, and if you remember uh, a couple of years back, San Bernardino County uh, Sheriff's Department, they had a lot of issues. Um, they got a real big black eye. There was a guy, I guess he was on house arrest or something for having cooked meth. And cops went and knocked on his door to see if he knew something about someone else. Well, he was cooking meth in the trailer. So he took out the back, took out, out the back door, stole a car drove down jumped the fence stole somebody's horse and took off into the desert and the cops were chasing him on foot there was a helicopter following him unbeknownst to the guys on the ground there was also a news helicopter watching the whole thing a guy gets bucked off the horse he you know spreads out goes down on the ground the cops just come and i mean one guy just like hey 67 yard field goal kicked this dude right in the face they're kicking him in the nuts they're you know punching him they got him handcuffed and all as as more cops show up it's, it's like something out of the simpsons they're just beating the crap out of this guy uh, and so after that, you know, they, they kind of toned down quite a bit because they got put in the limelight over that. Now you're a, you're a federal, uh, you work for the federal fire department and BQ, you work for an actual like city or, you know, that kind of locality. So you, you probably deal with the police a lot more, don't you? When you go out on calls? Uh, yeah. Um, but just real quick, if you don't mind, um, oh, oh, yeah, go ahead. Go some, ahead. some legalese just to cover uh, my butt. Um, I just want everybody to understand I am speaking for myself and not in an official capacity for any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individuals. My statements reflect my personal opinions. Any views, opinions, or beliefs shared are not intended to malign the aforementioned entities. Now that that's did someone happened. write that for you, or did you write? That? I wrote that like a boss. Nice. Um, <laughs> Very legal. <laughs> um, so yeah, I work for uh, three different uh, municipalities: uh, the Cleveland Fire Department full time, uh, Copley Fire Department part time, and uh, Medina Fire Department part time. So, um, how how is for you guys both? Or well, um, first Levi for federal fire fire department are you doing mostly fires or how often are you going out for like medical stuff <clears throat> so uh so it, it's interesting because yeah I, I'm, a, I'm a gs employee um and being I, I i will i'll go ahead and say right now we are not nearly as busy as uh as skid mark is is with his stuff because our target population lives on fort sill 
they're generally healthy, relatively disciplined young people. Um, and all the buildings are maintained by the federal government who, you know, will throw money at them for, for no reason whatsoever. Um, so we, we don't do a whole lot of structure fires. Uh, the last one we had actually the Burger King on Fort Silk, their grease, uh, trap in their vent hood caught on fire. And it was just a quick little spurt with the fire extinguisher, put it out. Um, it's not to say we don't have structure fires in the housing, but it's, it's far and few between because we have relatively uh, responsible people living there. Uh, where we really uh, make our money is uh, range fires because, mm-hmm. you know, it's windy in Oklahoma. It's flat. There's a lot of grass and it gets hot. So uh, we have range fires. We're coming up here now that uh, it's getting to be fire season. We'll probably have two to three fires a day all the way up until September, October time frame when it starts to get cold and rainy and stuff again. Um, we do run a decent amount of medicals. Um, but, and again, you know, like, like you said, my, my opinions don't represent Forts of Fire. They represent his. So no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but <laughs> they, they, uh, you know, we, the station I'm at, uh, we have the Reynolds army hospital, which I don't know if you remember from coming through, uh, Masoc, but it's that big hospital they have that is actually not a hospital. It's a clinic. It was a hospital okay. at one point in time, but now it's an outpatient clinic and there's a VA clinic there as well. Uh, so my station makes a lot of medical runs um, because anytime somebody has chest pain, shortness of breath, anything that could potentially be life threatening but isn't currently, they send fire with the ambulance, uh, which is also based out of the hospital, ironically enough, uh, to go to go look at that. So we make a lot of medical runs that aren't really real, if that makes sense. I mean, you a lot a lot of the time they're precautionary. Right. And a lot of the time it's, uh, you know, at the VA clinic, they've got a, you know, a Korea or a Vietnam vet who's got, you know, he's got emphysema and he's, you know, on heart medication and this, that or the other. And his EKG looked a little funny. So his heart, something's wrong with his heart and they need to get him to the hospital. And he showed up because he has chest pain and shortness of breath. Well, because he could be having a heart attack, they send the fire department and the ambulance. So we just kind of show up and hang out with him until the ambulance gets to make sure he doesn't get any worse. Uh, but every now and then we do run legit medicals uh we have we've had uh pretty bad car accidents that we've worked uh quite we that's probably the most frequent car accidents and then kids in in ait out there that are ODing on on drugs whether it be prescription yeah yeah so really that's an issue oh, oh yeah we had we ran one and without getting you know violating uh hipaa at all we ran uh one call at night where we had a kid who had eaten a whole bottle of uh uh, basically muscle relaxers and he was i mean dude this dude he was zonked man and so we get hit me and my my the partner get him uh, loaded uh onto the gurney for the ambulance and i'm looking like where's my crew chief where where where'd he go and one of the soldiers goes oh they're up with the second patient that's like second patient we go up to two decks and sure enough there's a dude who did the exact same thing and so we had to get Jeez. a second ambulance out there yeah it was just ridiculous so um, we run into those, but that's nothing, nothing major like he's running into because again, our, our population is generally healthy and, and well-disciplined. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did either starting with Q, did either one of you guys consider going to become like a wildland firefighter? Uh, <laughs> so I'll, I'll be a hundred percent honest, uh, in that respect, Levi is my hero because wildland fire scares the hell out of me. Um, just because I, 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 
for me being in a structure fire, um, I can just run out of the building or, 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 you know, get out of the building somehow, you know, generally speaking, and I'm out of danger for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. You ain't going to outrun a, a, a wildland fire, which is not. Yeah. I mean, the wind moves too rapidly. Those things get super hot. Not that a structure fire doesn't get really hot. Um, but I mean, I considered it for like two minutes after watching, what was it? That only the brave. And I was only like, the brave. Yeah. Nah, not for me. I don't think I've ever seen that. Is that a movie? Yeah. It's, it, uh, it's a very good movie. Um, if you don't mind, you all speak this is very, near and dear to my heart with this because I do a lot of outside fires. Um, mm-hmm. it's basically, uh, it was in 2012, 2010. I believe uh, there was a uh, uh, municipality that was the first ever uh, interagency hotshot crew, which the hotshots are the they are like the the equivalent of what we would call you know rangers in the army model uh, of wildland firefighters, and then the soft dudes would be like the smoke jumpers. And you have to be a hotshot for so long before you can become a smoke jumper. But the hotshots mm-hmm. are they're they're king when it comes to wildland firefighting for the forestry service and uh, a municipality in uh, Arizona got a they they got certified as a hotshot crew and uh they were they ended up getting the yarnell hill yarnell hill fire out there in arizona is a really bad fire and they for one reason or another um nobody knows because nobody can ask them why they did what they did but 19 of the 20 of them uh their lookout was the only one who survived they ended up in front of the fire and outside of their safety zone um and they got burned up real bad and just to to put it in perspective they were in their fire shelters and the fire shelter is basically like an aluminum foil sleeping bag looking thing that you put over you and lay with your feet to the fire. Well, it's it's rated to it itself is rated to to withstand 700 degrees. You won't survive 700 degrees inside there, but the the shelter itself is rated at 700 degrees, and all the shelters were completely burned up, um, and all their tools were burned up and stuff. So that was like the single largest loss the fire service has had in a very long time, and so it was a it's a big learning point for us. That's something that we reference um, a lot with with our our safety on the on the fire line when we're outside. I actually I actually remember when that happened. Um, yeah. I didn't know I didn't know they had made a movie about it, but I remember when that happened. They said like the the spotter was like the junior guy, so he was up on the hill and like the wind shifted or something, and it just you know it's one of those things. So when you when you deploy your shelter, and I know I remember them saying they're like when they heard the radio call that they were deploying their shelters that they're like oh fuck like this is. This is not good, you know. Yeah. Um, is the hope is the hope that the fire is just quickly moving and it's just going to pass over you real fast? Or, I mean, what's what's the realistic expectation of surviving inside of one of those little shelters? So y- yes, uh, there without without teaching you your S one thirty and S one ninety classes about wildland firefighting, um, the uh, the hope is that the fire is moving fast enough that. It will, your shelter, basically, you want to be on bare earth, mineral soil, so you want to dig down to where it's just dirt and there's nothing flammable underneath you and keep your fire shelter around the outside of you and let it provide thermal protection as the fire rolls over. Most fire shelter deployments that are survived are done in in an area that has already burned out. Uh, So you have a a buffer of, we call it the black, um, because it's, you know, for obvious reasons, there's the green and the black. The green is unburned fuels, the black is already burned. Um, so mm-hmm. you, if anything's going to rekindle in that area, most of the fuel load is already gone. 
Uh, and there's actually, you can get on YouTube and, and Google surviving the shelter or something like that and listen to people talk about having been in a fire shelter when the fire rolls back over. But it's, uh, it's one of those things that if you're in the black, the odds of survival are much higher. If you're in the green, which is where the, the Granite Mountain hotshots were, uh, your odds of survival are, are pretty low. Um, there's a, uh, there's a wildland school that we actually put on here at Fort Sill every year. And it's for all the firefighters, career and volunteer, uh, in Oklahoma. It's free. It's paid for by the state, um, because 70% of the firefighters in the United States are volunteer. Uh, it's a mm-hmm. fact that not a lot of people know. Um, and unfortunately volunteer, a volunteer department's only as good as the training they can get. So, uh, we had a guy, the, the school is called the Destry Horton, the wildland roundup. And there was a guy whose name was Destry Horton. Uh, he was killed in a fire about, oh, about 20 miles from my house right now. So about, say, about 30 miles from Fort Sill. Um, he was killed in the fire there because it was, there was really not a whole lot of training on the stuff. Uh, and after that happened, the state of Oklahoma said, man, that, that was bad. We need to do something. So they have all the forestry guys come out and teach classes and everything just about how we fight fires in Oklahoma. We don't really do, we don't do wildland firefighting like you, like, you see with the forestry service, we do grass fires because uh, we don't really have trees and stuff. Um, but that was, you know, our version of that, uh, of, of, you know, our lessons learned from the Granite Mountain incident, from the Destry Horton mm-hmm. incident. Um, so I don't, I've never been inside a shelter uh, outside of practice, practice deploying one, and I, I don't ever plan on it. Uh, oh, but man, that's got to be scary as fuck when you do that, you know? Well, it's, it's like, uh, like you was saying, uh, structural firefighting, which, you know, we do at Fort Sill and wildland firefighting are, are two totally different things. Structural firefighting, mm-hmm. you're wearing an air pack where you're breathing cool air that is clean. You know, it's, it's was filled up you know, from a tank. It's all self-contained. You're wearing heavy gear that's thermally protective. Wildland firefighting, I basically got a long sleeve Nomex shirt on, Nomex pants, uh, like a construction helmet. And a Nomex hood, maybe maybe sunglasses yeah. or goggles. I wear goggles because I don't like getting dirt in my eyes. But the tough guys, they wear sunglasses. But I mean, there's no respiratory protection, uh, you know. And you're wearing work gloves, and you're you know standing five feet from the fire line with with a tool digging or with a with a one inch booster line, putting water on it, and it gets real smoky and it gets real hot, and it's uh it's definitely a different animal. So yeah, oh, yeah, I bet. Q, what's a if you were so, if a wildland firefighter gets trapped in a fire, they're going to deploy a shelter. What happens if you are getting stuck in a structure? Let's say you're in like a warehouse or something, and your exit has just got blocked. What do you do at that point? Um, so what we do is we we kind of declare a, what's called a mayday. Um, so you know now these days everybody has radios, everybody has um, air packs with what's called a pass system, um, and what that does is it, it detects your movement, right? So when you stop moving for a period of time, um, this alarm will start going off and it's, it's extremely loud. The, uh, longer you are remain motionless, you won't be able to turn it off unless you hit, you know, a series of buttons or a, um, like a, a, um, a sequence of a button. Um, mm-hmm. so this thing is super loud and the, the thought there is, Hey, I've declared a mayday. I'm either trapped or I'm lost. Send in the writ team or the, send in the writ. Um, the writ team 
or the RIT, is the uh, Rapid Intervention Team. Um, and basically, these are guys at that when 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 you have a um, assignment to a structure fire, these guys just literally stand outside with their tools and with a RIT bag that has extra tank, extra mask, you know, tools for getting a downed firefighter out. Um, we run these drills so that literally these guys are just standing by. They don't go in and fight the fire. Um, and if a firefighter goes down and declares a mayday, those guys go in and get him. So um, what we try and do is we run drills that, you know, so for the guys that declare a mayday, they can say, okay, here's where I think I was last. Here's what I was doing. Here's what's happened to me. Here's the resources I have. Then the RIT will use that information to essentially try and come rescue the guy. Um, mm -hmm. Other things you can do is, you know, hopefully um, you can find a second way out. Like, obviously, you try and self-rescue. Um, so, you know, if you're on the second floor, then, you know, you, you try second or third floor or whatever. You try and signal to the guys outside where you are so they can get a ladder to that uh, window or a, a door that's up there um, and get you out. So that's. Have you have you ever had any close calls when you're in a structure fire? Uh, yes, actually, um, it was a little bit before I think our first podcast. Um, I was in a uh, pretty significant structure fire. It was a um, two-story apartment building. It was like a very long apartment building, and you know, pretty pretty good working fire. Um, and the second floor had heated up so much to the point where there was a lot of holes in the floor. Um, mm -hmm. So I was actually making my way up to uh, with my with my partner, um, who was my senior man. I was making my way up to the second floor, and the second floor stairs had burned out. So it was just the second floor landing and the first floor landing, and that we had uh, put a um, small ladder to so that you could go up and down there. Um, and as I was stepping off the ladder onto what I thought was a solid second floor, my foot went through the floor. So then I tried to take another step and I reached out and grabbed something. I don't know what the heck I grabbed, but um, I, I thought my second foot was stable. So I put my weight on it and then I fell through that portion too. So oh, um, I, I tweaked my back pretty good. Um, I was actually out of commission for about three and a half weeks. Um, yeah. I, uh, at, at first, you know, it was, I actually, we actually finished working in the fire. Everything was cool. Um, came back to the station, ran a couple more calls and then I woke up in the morning. I was like, man, my back's kind of sore. You know, I talked to my, uh, captain, um, and I was like, Hey, you know, boss, my back's a little sore. You know, I might, I might shrug off next day or whatever. He's like, Nope, you're going to the hospital. I'm like, Hey, let's calm down, boss. I don't need to go to the hospital. He's like, no, you're going. You need to get this stuff done. Go to the hospital. So I'm like, okay, fine. So literally, I mean, it was just, it at the time, it felt like this big nonsensical show. I mean, I had I filled out this injury report form. Um, the EMS unit that was there took me uh, to the hospital. You know, not lights and sirens or anything, but, you know, they still took me to the hospital. So I'm there, like, in my uniform, just, like, sitting there talking to the uh, paramedics I just got yeah. off shift with. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. It's, you know, they're making fun of me a little bit. I'll say probably getting harassed. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh my God. 
Um, so then we got to the hospital. I tell them what's going on. They give me a shot of Toradol in the rear, which was fantastic. Um, and then about two days later, I was feeling generally okay. And I thought I was ready to go back to work. And I sat up on the edge of the bed and I was just, you know, kind of chit chatting with the wife and kind of figuring out what I was, my plan for the day. And she went upstairs and then I sneezed and it was the sharpest, most horrible pain in my low back, uh, at L5 actually. And, uh, I, I, I just yelled, you know, and so I came running out. She's like, what's wrong? I was like, I, it hurts so bad. I can't, I can't move. You know, I was able to stand up, but then I literally couldn't put on my, my shorts by myself. Like it was a yeah. weird struggle. Cause I couldn't bend too far forward without excruciating pain. So I, uh, mm-hmm. I went through some physical therapy and, uh, chiropractic work and, you know, I ended up being okay. I mean, there was some disc damage. Um, that, you know, the, the doc wasn't convinced it was a full on rupture, but he's like, there is some disc involvement there. Um, so he's like, you need to need some downtime, take it easy, you know, and just chill at home. So, um, Dude, there's nothing worse than hurting like your back or your shoulder. You realize how much it's like involved in everything yep. you do, you know? Yeah. I know what you're talking about too. I messed my back up uh, about a year before I got out and I've never really got over it. Yeah. And even now, sometimes I'll do something and tweak it. And for like a week, it's like, dude, I can barely get out of bed, can barely tie my shoes. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And that is like the worst. Oh, yeah. I'm actually probably going to go back to, I got to go back to the VA and get it checked on because I'm at the point now where when I stand up and walk around, if I'm up for like more than 10 or 15 minutes, my left leg starts going numb. Ooh. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm all fucked up, man. Yeah. It's so, just one of those things. And, and I'm like you, I'm like, ah, I don't need to go to the hospital yet. Like I'll just, nah, it's fine. If but. I may throw something in there, uh, because you know, my side of that story, my wife calls me one morning frantic. She goes, Abby with his wife, she goes, Abby just texted me. Quentin fell through the second story of a building. He's in the hospital. She's on her way up there. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what happened? So I'm I that was that was all the information I got was, hey, he fell through. You're the thinking the worst now. Yeah. Right. Because one thing that, you know, the, the thing that makes the writ so challenging, like he was talking about, is unlike the movies, it is smoky and dark and impossible mm. to see inside of a inside of a structure fire. I mean, it's it's so dark. You, you can't see anything. You're just kind of bumping into things, and that's how you figure out. You're like, oh, that, that feels like a, a table. I must be in the kitchen. Or, you know, oh, that feels like a bathtub. I'm in the bath. You know, it it really is disorienting. And, I mean, just close your eyes and, and try and crawl around your neighbor's house that you've never been in before. Um, so I was sitting there. I was freaking out for a while. I texted him. I was like, hey, man, call me when you get a chance. I heard you got hurt. Hope everything's okay. And that's when he comes out with his eye. Oh, dude, I'm fine, man. I just fell through the floor. It ain't a big deal. Just sit on the floor and make sure it's solid next time. If you ever walk on one, I'm right. like, no, no, you fell through the floor, dude. You're not good. He's like, no, no, I'm good. I didn't go all the way through. It's totally so, fine. It's, it's absolutely normal. Yeah. So it was that I feel like that his story needed a little bit more emphasis on the fact that uh, some of us didn't get all the information right away. And we had like 15 minutes of holy crap going through our head before we uh, just like, what you happened. know, just like people that. Um, like my family and your guys' family and stuff like that, anybody that has a military family, you know, if something was to happen to one of us 
training overseas or anything like that, I can't imagine what the family is thinking while they're waiting on details. You know what I'm saying? Because just like you, like you said, you don't really have contact. So you're, you get like, Hey, they're injured and they're in the hospital and, and you don't get a lot of details, you know? So that's, you know, that's rough, man. That's rough on a, on a family. I can't imagine the stress and stuff I put on my mom and my dad and everybody while I was always gone and doing crazy stuff that we, we used to do. Um, before we move on, I'd, I'd like to talk about Levi. If you want, I'd like to start with you. I know a lot of people get out of the military and becoming a firefighter or EMT is like a really popular option for a lot of people. Do you want to explain what the hiring process is like for on the federal side? And then what kind of like your police or not police academy, your fire academy, if you have one, um, what that is like and what people could expect if they decide to go that route. And then Q, we'll jump over to you and you can explain it for the municipal side. Cool. Yeah, uh, that that's great because they're two totally different worlds, um, although they're you know they're same different. So, for the federal fire service, if you want to be on a, a military installation to be a firefighter, um, you are expected to be able to do all your structural firefighting and wildland firefighting, um, as well as all your hazmat incidents. They, it's one of those we call it an all hazards response, and really it's the jack of all trades thing. It's the it's kind of like being an 061. You're expected to be able to do mortars, artillery, naval gunfire, aircraft, deconfliction, planning. I mean, they, they just expect you to know everything, um, mm-hmm. which is where it gets kind of hard because you end up having to be good at just one thing and decent at the others. Um, but the Federal Fire Service, uh, a, a fully certified federal firefighter is a GS-7 employee, uh, and they are uh, – you'll have – your all your fire academy stuff, which is firefighter one, firefighter two, hazmat awareness, hazmat operations, uh, as well as EMT basic. Uh, and then on top of that, you have to have all your driver certifications. So you need to be able to drive the engine company, uh, the which is just your typical fire truck that's got the hoses and the pump and and everything. Uh, your your aerials, which is your ladder trucks. Um, because we are military, you have to be able to do airport uh, rescue and firefighting. So the crash trucks to deal with aircraft fires. Um, and then uh, you have to be able to drive all your mobile water supplies because, again, with the wildland side, um, we there's not fire hydrants out in the middle of the training area. So we bring yeah. our own water. We have basically have, like, big tanker trucks full of water that we bring out there. Uh, so you got to be able to – and we can do all sorts of cool things. Then we can suck water out of a creek if we need to to fill it up. We can uh, – push it different it, there's a lot of stuff so all your driver certifications yeah. and then uh your uh hazmat tech so you gotta be a hazmat technician which is the guys that you see like the the 2319 guys from monsters inc where they're wearing the, the full-on suit and they're actually going and plugging the leak or or cleaning up whatever hazardous material it is uh so there's 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 a lot of stuff that it takes um the federal service doesn't actually run a fire academy we hmm. work through um uh afcsa which is the air force training uh and you basically it's kind of like marine net you you get a marine net course that you do and then you have you get proctored you actually have a hands-on evaluation you're proctored by someone um usually from your department afcsa has the option to send their own proctor down but usually if your department is in good standing and they're not you know pencil whipping everybody's reports uh, then you have, you have one of the, your firefighters, like I just got my evaluation done and they had a firefighter from a different station that I'd never worked with before do my evaluation. So that way there was no, uh, bias, but you, you can get everything done. You can be a guy that for the federal service, the most important 
thing you need to get hired is a DD-214 with an honorable discharge. Uh, I mean, that's, that's oh, really, really, yeah, that, that's really what it is because the federal service, the GS employee, the civil service was designed for, with veterans in mind when it, when it first came out back in the forties uh, mm-hmm. or fifties, whatever um, it was meant for veterans. So they, they, that's really the audience they're trying to market to now. With that being said, anybody can join. We have, we have quite a few, like our, our fire chief, for example, was non-military. Um, so you can, you can join depending on, you know, how many people they need to hire? Do they need to hire someone? Um, and as long as you're, you know, you have something to bring to the table, but it definitely helps if you've gone through a fire academy um, and have a little bit of experience. Uh, it helps for two reasons. One is if you start off with fire one, fire two, hazmat awareness, hazmat ops, and um, uh, airport firefighter, you don't come in as a GS three or a GS four. You get to come in as a GS five. So you automatically start start out making out here i think a gs5 is fifty thousand a year so yeah um it, it's definitely beneficial uh, in that aspect but um once once you're in once you're in the federal system as a firefighter can is it pretty easy to transfer from station to station if you need to like if you need to if you say your family's moving or you decide to move from fort sill to virginia can you is it pretty easy to get a as long as they have an opening to jump yeah. into a, a separate fire department yeah absolutely as long as they have an opening um it, if you apply for it uh there's a you know they they always look for when when they put a job opening out it's all done through usa jobs when they put a job opening out most of the other fire chiefs in the federal service know that that opening's happening they kind of get the mm-hmm. the inside baseball with that if you will um and it's kind of hey if anybody wants to apply for this this is it's open to federal employees but it's not open to the public yet and then you can put your, you know, put your application in just like you normally would. And it's relatively easy if you're, <clears throat> if you're in good standing with your department, uh, because if I, if I say I, we had a guy recently, he left Fort Sill and he went to Alt- uh, Altus Air Force Base, which is about an hour west of us. Um, mm-hmm. And he, uh, he put in his application and like that same day, their fire chief called our fire chief and said, Hey, I see your boy wants to leave is like, you know, tell me about him. And the chief says, yeah, hey, he's a good dude. He's just trying to find someone that's closer to home. Okay, cool. Yeah, we'll go ahead. We're going to hire him. So, um, you know, like me, that's I, pretty awesome. I, I knew a couple of the Fort Sill firefighters. One of them actually taught my my fire academy. Um, and he told me about the job opening that I ended up getting. Uh, and he he said, hey, man, if you want this, give me your resume. Give me your, Send me your resume, your DD-214. I will hand deliver it to the assistant chief tomorrow when I go to work and, uh, and we'll get you. So they, you know, in that aspect, they did a by name hire for me. I didn't have to, uh, actually sit down and do, uh, any of the, you know, legwork to get an interview. Uh, I, I got a, I got a by name hire, uh, interview nice. basically, um, uh, because I, th- I knew somebody, you know, and, and that's with contracting. Cause you know, I did private contracting for a little bit contracting or, Federal service, knowing someone is knowing someone and having a DD two fourteen and a clean record is going to take you so far. Yeah, I, I try to push it a lot on. I've said it on multiple podcasts, but networking people don't people that don't understand networking are really missing out on opportunities because most jobs I think are come like that, like word of mouth. Hey, I know this guy because it's always a lot easier for someone to hire somebody when they have somebody that can literally vouch for them, you know, rather than just a name on a piece of paper. Um, networking is key, man. Like 
I try to talk to, I mean, now I'm on podcasts, so I'm networking with everybody, but I mean, before I, I would always try to just talk to people and stuff like that and just get my name out there because you never know, man, when you can help them out, they can help you out. Like networking is definitely key. Um, how long from the time that someone like applies on USA jobs can, does it normally take for them to get actually hired onto the fire department for the federal service? So, um, <clears throat> that's, it's situation dependent. We actually have a guy yeah. who got hired and is now has a TBD start date due to this whole coronavirus nonsense we're mm-hmm. dealing with uh, because they froze everything. So yeah. we have a guy that uh, he's he's been told, hey, you got the job, man. When can you start? And he said, I can start, you know, in March. And they said, all right, cool. Oh, wait, hold on. Uh, but usually oh, and, and we've talked about this on my last podcast, but I want to bring it up one more time just for anybody listening. USA Jobs, it's it's just an algorithm that looks for keywords to try and get you past. They're 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 the metering device of what actually goes to the fire chief and the assistant chiefs. Um, so you have to say the right things on your resume in USA Jobs in order for it to make it past their little robot computer that mm-hmm. sent that that filters it. So for anybody listening, if you're looking, and this this is not just for the fire service, for any federal job that you use on USA Jobs. Um, the best advice I can give you is build your resume format. You obviously tailor your resume towards the job you want. We know that, but then copy the entire job posting on USA jobs, like the entire page, copy it and then paste it into the header or the footer on your resume and make it white ink. So that way you can't see it, but the computer will re- will read all the words that are there. And then when you submit your resume, save it as a PDF instead of a Word document and submit it. That way nobody can open up the header or the footer. So basically you, you have an invisible header or footer that has every single keyword from the job listing that the computer is looking for. And it's just kind of mm-hmm. one of those one of those lands the from underground tricks of the trade. You, you have to, you know, you have to because there are so many there are so many good people that um, that don't make it places because they just can't get an opportunity because there's a a third party, whether it be a computer or a person that just doesn't understand uh, point in case. I, I actually applied for a contracting gig at March air force base when I was getting out of the Marine Corps, because, you know, we thought about staying in Temecula for a little while and, and it was right up the road and the job code, they wanted an air force JTAC and I applied for it. And I talked to this headhunter who was just a third party, you know, independent contractor headhunter. Mm-hmm. And he told me, Hey man, you don't qualify. You weren't air force. And I had to explain to him, I said, hey, a J, J stands for joint. You know, it, it's multi multinational. We're all certified the same. I've worked with this, that, or the other. And he told me that he's like, we can't hire you because you're not an Air Force JTAC. And I was like, bro, the job is to teach UAV pilots how to work with ground controllers. I have yeah. hours and hours of doing that. I know what I'm doing. But, you know, it is what it is. I think I, I know the job you're talking about, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was, it was a, it would have been a pretty cake gig, I guess. But at the same time, I'm, you know, I was ready to be out of California. I, I live on a farm out here in Oklahoma now, so it's I, I enjoy the rural lifestyle. But uh, to bring it back full circle, that that's really, uh, I would say that if you haven't heard anything back within a week, reformat your resume and resubmit it. There's no limit on how many really? times you could submit for a job. To my knowledge, I know I could be wrong, but to my knowledge, there's no yeah. limit on how many times you can submit. Okay. What about you, Q? How's it, how's it work on the uh, municipal side? Obviously it's going to different depending on yeah. the state and the <clears throat> county and all that stuff, but for, and you, you're in Ohio or you said Cleveland, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, so 
again, I work for three different departments. Uh, Cleveland, obviously, being like a major city department. Uh, Medina and Copley are more of uh, smaller areas, but they're kind of similar. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, as far as our capabilities go, as far as those two smaller departments, um, they're very similar to what uh, Levi has on the federal side, other than like crash fire rescue uh, for airports. Um, so, you know, across all three of those departments, you know, I've gone to car wrecks for all three structure fires for all three. Um, they all have kind of generally the same requirements. Uh, they want you to be uh, firefighter one and two and at least the EMT. Um, what, what is that? What does that mean? Firefighter one and two. So far, I know it's like a ranking, but yeah. So firefighter one and two, that's basically just, in a sense, an hourage requirement of these are the hours I spent doing firefighter, fighter, fire, firefighter related um, training. And here are the specific trainings during that time period that I covered, you know, and, and state by state, it, it's, it's kind of like different, but nationwide, it's almost, you know, the, the, the same nationwide. Um, the IFSAC and ProBorg certifications right. are good in all 50 states yeah yep. so that's that's literally what i was going to say next um but uh, so for like my smaller departments so medina and um copley have a little bit different requirements so to get on copley and for most smaller departments that you'll see especially in the state of ohio uh, they want you to be a firefighter one and two and a paramedic because if you're that they almost don't have any training to get you you've proven yourself intelligent enough to do basically any other thing in in the fire service um Mm -hmm. just because uh firefighter one and two aren't aren't bad i mean you know we hear the jokes that firemen are dumb um but those 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 two courses are really not that hard um but paramedic school is extremely challenging like what I compare it to is if anybody here has gone through TACP school, I found paramedic school to be much harder than TACP school just because of the amount of information you have to know, memorize, and the way you have to treat patients. It's just everything is so reliant on every other thing, and it's it, it's just really difficult. Um yeah, I, th- I think people outside of that community don't realize the different levels of like EMT, paramedic, right. and stuff like that, and how much work it takes to get to like being a paramedic. Right. You know, so, I mean, that's like a that's kind of a big deal. How long how long does it normally take to from like I'm just a regular dude sure. to to get like a paramedic or paramedic certification? So um, for the actual paramedic certification, so let's say you're just talking about the the course to become a paramedic, most places that's two years. The course I went through was 10 months long. So they're packing mm. two years worth of stuff into 10 months. And I mean, it's feet to the fire. Like if if you fail a test or two, like you're out, you're done. That's it. You know, yeah. um, the course itself costs about uh, $5,600. So uh, it's a pricey course. And I mean, and, and it should be because you get access to a lot of materials. You're actually through paramedic school, you get to treat patients. You get to assess patients. You get to ride on ambulances, go with fire departments, work at hospitals. Like you're, you're doing it. 
you know, so it's, it's a tough course and it's, um, it's, uh, like there's a lot of pressure. Uh, yeah. but again, and that's just for paramedic school. Now to become a paramedic first, you have to be an EMT, uh, mm-hmm. or higher. So in, in order you have EMR, which is just like basic, basic first responder type stuff. Then you have EMT B, um, EMT basic, which they're more certified to do any exterior treatments. So like they can give you O2, they can do CPR, they can assess patients, see what's kind of going on with patients, try and make recommendations as far as, um, you know, what's going on with the patient and what might need to happen. Um, then you have uh, EMT Advanced, which there's not a whole heck of a lot of EMT Advanced um, in Ohio, at least. I, you know, I, I, from what I understand, it's a little bit different in Oklahoma and different depending on you know state to state. Um, but they can do IVs, uh, intravenous access, um, mm. and just a, a very narrow bandwidth of drugs. Um, paramedics, we can do it all. Um, we're, we're intubating you, which means we're putting a tube down your throat. If you need it to breathe, we're doing IV, we're pushing, uh, serious drugs like narcotics, uh, drugs that can stop your heart. We're doing, uh, electrotherapy, uh, which would be like defibrillation, cardioversion, pacing, things like that. Um, we're doing EKGs, we're assessing all those. Um, so, you know, paramedic is pretty much the highest you can go however there are like small little up levels within that so like imagine like put being a paramedic on the same level as being a jtac now you can be a jtac e and just like in uh in the paramedic community you can be a paramedic instructor or you can be mm-hmm. a paramedic critical care which um you can do extended transport so you're talking like if a patient needs to go from um, let's say, you know, a very rural hospital, um, two to three hours away to a major unit, uh, at another hospital, that paramedic, uh, critical care paramedic is going to be with that patient doing the transport, making sure their ventilator stays, um, active and working properly, making sure their drugs are staying appropriate. So like, You'll have patients that need drugs every, you know, so often at different time intervals and different doses and maintenance doses and things like that without getting too technical on you. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have the levels within that in and of itself. But like I said, in order to go to paramedic school, you got to be EMT and EMT. That course kind of varies, but usually it's about a semester long. Um, So, again, you're looking at two, maybe three years to be completely certified to, you know, practice, um, essentially mobile medicine as a, um, first responder. Um, do you guys have an actual, do you, when you went to go do, all right, for your hiring process, one, how long did it take by the time that from the time you applied to the time you actually got hired on for what's the average time? Cause I know you're, you obviously work for a couple sure. different services. And then also, um, did you go through an actual like, um, uh, academy? Is there an actual academy you attend or is it just like you take these classes and, and then you apply? Okay. So, uh, again, for the municipal side, um, 
I'll talk about Cleveland and then I'll talk about my other two departments. Well, I'll talk okay. about my other two departments first, then Cleveland. So with my other two departments, uh, Medina, they'll sometimes hire a guy on that has nothing. So you're just some Joe Schmo off the streets and you're like, hey, I want to be a firefighter. Cool. We're going to send you to a fire academy. Excuse me. And we're going to send you to EMT school. So mm-hmm. uh, usually they want to get you to a fire academy first. That way, you know, they can get you uh, on a rig and riding and responding to calls. Uh, mm-hmm. Then they like to get you to EMT school so that you can then start, um, you know, responding to medical emergencies. Because believe it or not, for most places, um, most of their calls, so 80% of most fire department's calls are medical. Only yeah, 20% I can see that. Is fire. Now, depending on the fire, fire department that you're at, you know, those numbers can vary. For Cleveland, I would say it's maybe more around 60-40 per se. Um, from Medina, I would say that number is probably a little bit more accurate, 80-20. Um, mm-hmm. Now, for Medina, um, you know, sometimes, like I said, they'll hire a guy on with nothing. And that process really is dependent on how badly they need guys. Um, my hiring process for them was really short. It was like uh, two to three months. Um, and that's like for getting on a, any fire department, that's lightning fast. Like that's awesome. Um, and, you know, the, the, generally speaking, any getting hired on any fire department, the process is, you know, you apply online or in person um, at some point they're going to have you take a test, a written test. Um, then they're going to, once you pass the test, they'll have you, they'll run you through a background check. They'll run you through a medical check and they'll run you through a uh, physical ability test of some sort, not necessarily in that order. Um, once you pass all these things, then you get hired, you go through your probationary period. Um, and, and that's pretty much that. So Medina was really quick. Uh, Copley was actually really quick too, just because I happened to get in at the right time. Cleveland, totally different ball game. So with your bigger cities like that, your hiring process is going to be excruciatingly slow. Um, So I actually grew up in Akron, Ohio, home of LeBron James. Um, And that was the first department I applied to. I applied to them in 2016 um and this is just to kind of give you a frame of reference they called me back in 2019 oh jesus really yeah and 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 that's like not that bad of wait time you know there's some departments out in like california where you're going to be waiting anywhere from four to 10 years sometimes like it, it can what? really that oh yeah what why really that's low um it's one of those jobs that is looked at as very very stable and you know you have a low turnover rate generally speaking mm-hmm. for number one uh for number two you have a massive amount of applicants so mm-hmm. um for my akron test over a thousand people took that what's called a civil service exam um, and it's extremely similar to the ASVAB. Um, yeah. So a thousand people took the Akron test that I, I took. Cleveland, I took their test. I, I, I 
to be 100% honest, I took Cleveland's test for shits and giggles. I really didn't think I was going to get hired. I just took it for experience of taking tests. And they kept calling me back, so now I'm a Cleveland firefighter, which is awesome. Uh, there you go. But um, Cleveland's test, I think over 5,000 people took that test. So Man. loads of people are taking this test. Um, and there's a lot of people who want the job, but there's also a lot of people who um, are kind of on unemployment, and they're just taking the test just to show proof that, hey, I'm still looking for a job. Oh, they don't yeah, want yeah. The job. So then, you know, the civil service committee's responsibility to kind of weed through these applicants, okay, who actually wants this job, you know, who scored high enough and literally, you know, uh, like on, on our test, like two or three points will move you 10 people, you know, Mm -hmm. um, on like FDNY's test, um, Literally, because I, I have a buddy in, in New York who's actually took their test. Like, literally, a point will move you sometimes a couple hundred people, you know. Yeah. So, the points are massive. So, from big, bigger departments, the civil service test is the key. Like, that's the thing that everything the hiring process revolves around. That'll give you your ranking and that'll pretty much carry you through the rest of the test. So, I take Cleveland Fire Department's test, um, and from the time of application to the time I set foot in the academy, which means I'm officially hired, I'm officially on the Cleveland Fire Department, that was a uh, about a year and a month. So, and again, and I was in the first class off that test. So yeah, that tells you how slow, you know, being, and, and I was the 11th guy. So I was- So it's probably- so it's probably smart if guys are still in the military to start applying before Absolutely. they get out, like start a, start a year out. You want to go apply there as soon as you can. And, um, I've actually talked to a couple guys still in the military about this cause they were looking to be firefighters. Um, and I'm like, Hey, the most valuable thing you can do if you're applying for a municipal fire department, like, you know, in hometown USA or whatever, the most valuable thing you can do is try and get your EMT and paramedic first. Because yeah. that, like, once you get those two things, you're going to have to be beating back departments with a stick. Like, it's insane. Mm. Um, because, again, EMS really supports the fire service. I know I'm going to catch it from some firefighters because they don't like EMS. But, hey, that's that's the reality of the ballgame. EMS absolutely props up the fire service in most places. You know, places like Cleveland, we run what's called a third service. So, we have Cleveland Fire Department that's standalone. You have Cleveland Police Department that's standalone. And then you have Cleveland EMS, which is standalone. Mm-hmm. Now, yes, you know, we all, you know, work together in some capacities, but we are all absolutely separate departments. Like you have the fire chief, you have the EMS commissioner, and you have the police chief. So mm-hmm. three different departments that funnel into public safety. But um, so back to the hiring process. So I take the civil service exam. Um, and again, this is where it will kind of align with federal a little bit. The most valuable things you have for municipal fire is first and foremost, your DD-214. That, that will almost guaranteed get you, you know, a certain amount of points or a certain percentage of points 
And usually it's about equal to residency. So residency is another big, big draw. Like uh, in the state of Ohio, you cannot keep anyone from being hired um, due to them not living in the city. But, you know, if you do live in the city, you get more points on the test, basically. Yeah. So usually military and residency are the two big things you can have points wise. But again, if like I'm not a resident of Cleveland. I live in Medina, which is about 45 minutes south of Cleveland. So, and I still hired, um, but the DD 214 really helped me out and disabled military status. That is huge. Um, no one can deny you a job, uh, if you are a disabled veteran. Now, obviously if your disabilities prevent you from doing the job, then, you know, that'll disqualify you. But, you know, any disability that doesn't prevent you from actually doing the job, you get preference over essentially everybody else. So I had disabled military, which really helped me out. Um, some departments will give uh, credit, will, will give points or percentage points for college, uh, EMT, paramedic, um, and I think that's about it. So residency and military, disabled military are big, real big ones. Then, you know, EM, uh, paramedic, EMT, and college credit. Uh, okay. so I had those and it, you know, it, it, it really helped my ranking. And, and the example I'll give is when the first list came out, I was ranked 152 and they, they said in the email, like we, you know, this is with zero veterans points. I'm like, yo, what the F, you know? So I called the civil, uh, civil service committee and I'm like, Hey, you didn't put my, you know, uh, disabled veteran stuff in We're like, Oh, well you didn't serve in the military. I'm like, the fuck I didn't, you know, <laughs> I was like, Hey, here's my stuff. And you're like, Oh, okay, well we'll go back and, and take a look at it, you know? And they did. And I went from 152 down to 11. So oh, sick. firmly placing me, like once that came out, I was like, Oh my God, I'm getting to get hired. Like, this is crazy. Yeah. Um, so after that, after the civil service exam, I then had to take a physical agility test. Um, so did that, knock that out of the park. I mean, it's, these physical agility tests aren't hard. The only difficulty really is the technique of doing certain things. So things you might not be used to. Um, so if anybody's going to apply for, you know, fire department, find out what physical agility tests they use and find some way to practice it. Um, then next I did, they ran me through background check, which was, you know, pretty extensive, you know, they have you kind of, uh, fill out some forms like, like you would for like a secret or a top secret clearance. Um, and then they go talk to people that you've listed and then they talk to people that they know that might know you and they look at your transcripts, you know, um, that's pretty in depth for a fire department. Oh yeah. And and you gotta, you gotta keep in mind that, yeah, it's just hometown USA, but you're being trusted to go into people's homes, you know, when they're dead, dying, or bleeding, unconscious maybe, and they're trusting you not to take their stuff. They're trusting you to give Is them- that an issue? No, no, no. But I'm saying, like, these are the reasons the, the, the process is so in-depth. You know, yeah. people well, why do you need to do all that? Well, they're extending a, a crap ton of trust to... Yeah. As you know, Joe Schmo firefighter. Um, so they do that and then they run you through uh, a pretty good medical. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, 
achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. And then they run you through psych, which, you know, isn't too bad. Um, and then for some departments, they run you through a poly, uh, polygraph examination. Um, mm-hmm. Cleveland, they didn't. Um, but, you know, it just really kind of depends on your department. So once all that's cool. knocked out, like I said, that took a, a year. Um, and at the time, I was actually still going through like paramedic school and working. Um, then I got accepted into the, uh, to the fire Academy. So you essentially get your orders. Um, they literally send you a thing in the mail, like, Hey, you're, you, congratulations. You've been hired report to the fire Academy at this date, this time, you know, you go. Um, so the fire Academy was about five and a half months ish. Um, and for Cleveland, you, you learn, the book method, like they have books that they put out, like the first, um, first couple months you, you, for Cleveland specific, you had to go through EMT class. So they're making everybody EMTs. Even if you're already a paramedic, they have to put you all through the same stuff. Just, yeah, it, it was kind of a drag, but I mean, it is what it is. Um, so you, we went through EMT and then you get to the fun stuff, the fire stuff. So you're learning about fire, fire behavior, um, fire tools, structure of the fire department, how the fire department functions. Now, again, you're learning the book method. Let me stress that. So yeah, um, to kind of put that in perspective, it's not like the Marine Corps when you're learning out of a pub, when guys in the community who actually do this job are writing the publications. It's, they are firefighters writing the publications, but it's mostly like your smaller departments. Um, and I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but it's mostly your smaller departments that have a lot of time on their hands to write these, you know, essentially manuals and books that don't fight fire. Like we fight fire, you know, I'm not saying that they're worse or better or whatever. They just don't fight it the way we fight it. So while kind of learning the book method to pass the test and pass the pro boards, which, which is basically your hands-on portion, um, the, the instructor staff is teaching you the Cleveland way of doing things. Now, most major universities do have a fire academy. So like um, the University of Akron or Cleveland State University, Ohio State University – all of them have fire programs that will make you a certified fire one and fire two guy. Um, all of them have 
uh, well, Cleveland State doesn't, but like Tri-C, which is another uh, college here. Uh, but most of them will have like an EMT and some will have a paramedic program that's ran through the hospital. Um, so you can actually become fully certified going to college and get a degree. And that's kind of what I did-ish. So I got my Fire 1 and Fire 2 through Cleveland Fire Department. But while I was doing the Cleveland Fire Academy, I was actually finishing paramedic school, which got me my associate's degree. Um, mm-hmm. And to anybody listening now, I would highly recommend doing that. However, I don't recommend doing paramedic school while doing a fire academy. It's absolutely miserable. You're not going to see your family. You're going to be constantly on the go. But be in the books and on the go. Oh, dude. I mean, so my day literally was wake up at 4 a.m. to beat Cleveland traffic um, because we had to be there much earlier than everybody else. Plus, I had to be there earlier than all my other fellow cadets to get a good spot so I could, as soon as the academy was over at 4, I could get jump in my car and you know speed down to um, Akron um, to be there by 545 for paramedic school class. And oh, nice. I would do <laughs> clinical rotations, which I'm either riding in an ambulance or doing rounds at a mm-hmm. hospital until about midnight. And then I'm doing clinical rotations all during the weekend. So literally, I, I didn't see my family. Like I kissed them goodbye in the morning when they were still sleeping, and I kissed them goodnight when I got home while they were sleeping. So it's just, it's yeah. um, my nephew was actually born at the time, and I forget how old he is because I literally missed a year of his life. It was just crazy. Um, yeah. But so back to my recommendation. Um, anybody who's listening to this, I highly recommend getting your degree because the fire service is moving in the direction that they want degreed personnel, especially if you're going to pick up rank like lieutenant, captain, assistant chief, battalion chief, chief, you know, they yeah. want to see, you know, formally educated people. So I, do you, I, I, I know, I know some departments, you know, regionally people have different things that they have to have, um, like swift water rescue and stuff like sure. that. Are you guys <laughs> involved in anything like that? And how, what are, what is like the, uh, like what kind of follow on training do you have to get to get these like specialty you know, cause I know they have divers and everything yeah. else like that. So, so if you, so oh, let me start with Levi, Yeah, uh, start with Levi. Do you guys do that on the federal side at all? Yes. Uh, so it kind of goes back to that, that all hazards response. Um, we, uh, uh, we have, uh, we're rope rescue, high angle rescue certified. We're confined space rescue certified trench rescue, uh, structural collapse rescue. Um, because one of the benefits we have is, Fort Sill butts up against the wildlife refuge, which is also mm-hmm. federal land. And a lot of times people will get lost or they'll fall down the side of, you know, fall on the side of the mountain. And it's a volunteer department that responds and volunteer departments, yeah, not dogging them at all. Uh, I'm on one out here as well. Um, but I mean, we, we don't get funding. We, we make our money with fundraisers. So we've got like a 1985 pickup truck. That's one of our fire trucks, you know, uh, it's, nice. yeah. So, you know, um, <clears throat> so anytime there's, there's something like that, Fort Sill is requested to bring, cause we, you know, federal money, we got, we got money for days cause the government has great credit according to themselves. So, 
Uh, they, uh, but we'll go out and do high angle rescues and stuff. Um, so we did, uh, there's different levels of swift water rescue. Uh, we do have some issues with flooding on Fort Sill and there are some times we actually had a soldier drown back in 2015. He tried to drive his Jeep through one of the low water crossings that had about four feet of water in it and it was moving really quickly and it just took his Jeep and, uh, it ended up having, pulling his body a couple of miles down the road Jeez. or down the, down the Creek out of there. Um, yeah, it was, it was very unfortunate. So turn around. I was reading something the other day that was, I was reading something the other day that was saying that a foot of water can float most vehicles away. I was like, yeah, what? I didn't realize it that shallow. <clears throat> That's well, if crazy. You, if you filled your tires with you know, lead probably work. All right. But because they're filled with, with air, it, it creates a lot of buoyancy. I mean, you've got, I, I, my one ton pickup truck, it weighs, you know, 8,500 pounds, but I've got, you know, 70 PSI of air in each tire and, mm-hmm. you know, the 35 inch tire. So it, it will, it will float it, uh, depending on how quickly it's moving. If it's standing still, you'll be just fine. But if it's, if there's any movement to it at all, and especially when it's, you know, runoff from a flood, uh, mm-hmm. you've got water moving, you know, 25, 30 miles an hour, it'll, yeah, mm-hmm. it'll, it'll move it pretty quickly. So. Uh, but yeah, so we do things like that. We, um, we actually have a couple of boats at Fort Sill that we are not allowed to use. And the long and short of that with, without, you know, again, this is Levi's opinion. We, uh, long and short of that is we actually, <clears throat> we sent a bunch of guys up to Oklahoma city because for Oklahoma, OKC, those, those are the guys to be, you know, uh, they, they rescue stuff. They are on point with it. Firefighting. They're on point with it. I mean, they're, they're kind of the the idols of, of Oklahoma as far as firefighting is concerned. Um, and they have a Swift Water Rescue course up there. And we sent some guys up there. And the biggest issue we have was scheduling, just trying to trying to backfill because Uncle Uncle Sugar doesn't want to pay overtime for, you know, 14 guys. So that way these 14 guys can go play in the water and also get paid. And, you know, and it's it was just a scheduling conflict. And then the other issue is a lot of people were getting hurt up there. Um, oh, really? Well, because again, it's Oklahoma, so it's a, it's kind of like uh, what they call the Los Angeles River, where it's just like a giant concrete canal. Yeah. Uh, that there's a, a a river rafting place up in Oklahoma City, which is where they do the course, and it's just a concrete canal with like turbulent water that runs through it. Um, so, really, the issue with scheduling, but yeah, we do we do have to do uh, quite a bit of uh, wilderness rescue, um, a lot of search and rescue stuff. We do swift water rescue, confined space rescue um high angle rescue it's a lot of fun stuff do you want to define what a confined space or high angle rescue are what those two different things are yeah absolutely so high high angle rescue is uh there's actually i don't know if it hit your guys facebook but there was a like uh say a semi truck this happened earlier today a semi truck drives and crashes on a bridge and the the actual like rig of the the motor part of the truck is hanging off the edge and the trailer's up on the up on the the bridge um, you got to get the driver out, but he's hanging, you know, 50 to hundred feet above the ground. So somebody has to go get him. So we're talking ropes and, and having things set up, lowering a guy down to rappel down to get him, uh, and, and get him out that way. Uh, and confined space rescue is just simply a small place. That's not meant for human occupancy for more than just doing a quick job. So think, uh, sewers, um, the tunnels that have electrical conduit running underneath them. Um, any, any of those, any not- of those places like that. That does not sound like fun trying to get into, I mean, I'm a big dude, yeah. so crawled into anything like that it, and it trying to pull somebody out would be horrible. It, it, if you're claustrophobic, it's definitely not fun. 
Uh, we have our training tower at Fort Sill because when the we had some dudes from the East Coast that were like they wrote the book on confined space and rope rescue and cave rescue and all that stuff. Um, we have a training tower. It's four stories tall. It's kind of it's kind of stepped. It's tiered. So there's a four story part, a three story part, and a two story part. And on the two story part, there's a hatch on top that you can open up, and it's a 24 inch diameter tube that goes all the way down to the floor level. And they put a dummy down on the floor and the, the, the ground level. And we had to send rescuers down through the 24 inch tube, lower them down through that tube. Uh, and no of course way, you're, you're, you're on air. So you've got your, your mask on and you've got air hoses that go all the way to the top that you're hoping don't catch and kink. Cause it'll rip it off your face and you go all Hard the way pass. down. And, yeah. And it's, it's, it's definitely one of those things you really gotta, <clears throat> you gotta dig deep and reach down and grab a hold of your boys to, to not look like not look goofy in front of your friends, but um, you know that that's one thing that was kind of cool. They stressed in the course, like, look, man, everybody's breaking point is different on different days. Um, no, like, so yeah. if if you're gearing up, he go. The guy was saying, he's like, you know, and he, this is old guys. You know, was in his in his fifties. He's like, I've been doing this forever. Um, he was talking about a a cape. Well, it was a recovery. Difference between a rescue and a recovery is whether the person's alive or not, right? So they were trying mm-hmm. to recover a body out of a cave. Uh, some teens had gone down to this cave and. The rains came and it flooded it. And anyway, um, they were getting ready to go into this. And he's like, man, me and this guy for 20 years have been working together. We've been in some really crazy places. And that day, man, he was gearing up and he's shaking. He said, man, I can't do this. I, I can't do this. And there's is, that was a big thing that said is like, if when if you if you are not 100% comfortable doing it, nobody will make fun of you. No harm, no foul. Just come off the line. Someone else will go in and do it. Um, so, yeah. yeah, but it's, it's pretty – it's interesting. I can, it's not I can see how that could be. Oh, I bet. If so, let's say, let's say I, I'm like a hearse master or something like that before I leave the Marine Corps. Does any of that transfer over when you guys go and do stuff like rappelling and stuff with the fire department? So it, it transfers knowledge wise, but not certification wise. Um, okay. There's, uh, it, nobody, it's, it's that age old saying, nobody cares what you did. They care what you're doing or we're going to do. Um, yeah. with the exception of, We've got quite a few guys uh, that were firefighters in the Army or the Air Force or the Marine Corps that are on my department. And all that firefighting stuff transferred over because it's all IFSAC yeah, certified. It's which all IFSAC the same is, job field. Yeah, IFSAC is basically just the national accreditation if that for firefighting. Um, so, you know, yeah, it, it, that's fine. But, like, for me being a JTAC, they still made me go and attend the class on how to – what an LZ for a – basically a civilian medevac helicopter should look like and how to mark it and where to not walk in helicopter. I'm like, dude, was it, was it much different than what you already knew? Uh, it's a little bit different because they're smaller. They're, they're, they're like the size of Hueys and they're comfortable landing in, you know, 75 feet by 75 feet areas. Um, and also, uh, one thing I did not know is I didn't know that they flew with MVGs on, um, because I was sitting here, you know, I brought to the table, I was like, okay, well, in my gear, I carry a signal mirror and a buzzsaw, right? Your typical LZ okay. marking stuff, especially on the volunteer department out here. I bring that stuff. Um, and I was, you know, it, it's, it's similar. It, it really isn't that, that much different when you talk to the pilots because almost all the pilots are car military. Um, yeah. I was talking to a guy who was, uh, I was asking him, I said, hey, man, because they, they give the typical, hey, you're all civilians. You don't know any better. Look, man, we can't see power lines. We have a hard time seeing fences. We can't see LED lights through our MVGs. I, we, 
you can't just say land in front of my pickup truck. That doesn't help. You need, you know, the typical, you yeah. know, real basic stuff. And I went up to the Gaffney class and I said, Hey man, would you, would you be able to take like a NATO LZ brief? And he goes, dude, yes. He goes, did you serve? I was like, yeah, I was in the Marine Corps. Or I was a JTAC. He goes, Oh, no way. He goes, I was a, I was an Apache pilot. I was like, Oh, that's cool. I was like, and he's like, do you ever do any time down range? He's like, yeah, I was in, I went to Afghanistan three times. And we started talking. And he's like, man, I was flying escorts for your medevacs. I guarantee we talked to each other at some point. So, that's you know, cool. it was, it was, it was kind of cool like that, but, um, there is some overlap, but as far as like the training chief is concerned, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know? So on, on like the helicopter thing, um, like California and I know Los Angeles specifically, they have a helicopter, like fire squad that goes out to put out like brush fires and stuff like that. Uh, Quentin, do you have that? Anything like that in your area or uh, is there anything, uh, nothing, for you, Levi? Nothing fire related. <laughs> Um, yeah, we do have medevac birds here. Um, but you, you know, like Medina, my Medina fire department there, they have a city aspect in a very rural aspect. So yeah, they've landed helos before, but I mean, Cleveland, like it's a city of Cleveland, you know, there's yeah, buildings and stuff I, there, you know, they're not doing anything like that. Well, and what, what Justin's referencing is that Cal fire hell attack. Uh, yeah, that's why I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, cause I, I thought that would be a cool job to get at one point in time. Um, yeah, they. Do you no uh, longer think that? Um, I so I I love wildland wildland firefighting is my passion. I love I love being outside. I mean, structure fires are cool and all, but man, being outside and working a fire line is is just there's nothing like it, uh, and I really enjoy it. But dude, it's hard work. It, it is rough, oh, yeah. and you you look at like the actual forestry guys to go out and do it. They'll take these guys, put them in a helicopter, drop them on the side of a mountain, and these guys will cut three miles worth of fire line where they'll have an eight-inch line, eight inches in, in width, dug clear down to mineral soil, and it'll be three miles long, and they'll do it with a 24-man hand crew. And so they're just shovels, axes, picks. Work. And yeah, no, it, it's, it, it'll, it'll show you how tough you really are. Um, and, and so we, like I said, we, don't, we are not wildland firefighters at Fort Sill. We are... Mm-hmm. We fight range fires. We, we, we drive pickup trucks with water tanks on them out there. We do some hand tool stuff and we spray water with the pickup trucks. Uh, the big advantage we have with being in, being on, on a military installation is the impact area. We don't drive out there because there's too much UXO, you know, yeah. too many. We actually had a guy side note real quick. Uh, he had a one Oh five round EOD. When they clear areas, we have red, yellow, and green areas. Red, we don't go in. Yellow, we can we can go in there as long as we stay inside the truck. Green, we get out and walk. Um, and he was in a green area, and EOD says, hey, there's a 95% chance that it's completely cleared. Like, we we can only go so far. I mean, so every now and then they find, like, cannonballs from immediately after the Civil War that, that wash up out of the ground, you know. So, but we had a guy, a 105 round cooked off about 100 feet from him. And Ooh. yeah, he took a bunch of shrapnel. It completely destroyed the truck. Uh, basically, EOD told him, "No, I said you're lucky you were standing where you were because it blew out the end caps. It didn't, you know, because it, it it was it was a cook off. So it blew out the front the 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 nose plug for the fuse and and the and the tail. Uh, and that's why it completely destroyed the pickup truck. Um, this and, was just some random round out there that just randomly <laughs> went off while he yeah. was out there." Yeah, because it, it, it was on fire. Oh, shitty he, luck. He was out putting a fire out, and it was sitting out mm. in the grass, and it was one EOD missed because whether it was buried under the dirt or, or whatever, you know, I mean, it, nothing's 100% in life. So, <clears throat> anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, we, we'll go out there, and, and we'll, we'll spray water 
uh, and, and, and put the fires out that way. Um, but if in the green and the yellow and, you know, but if it's in the red, we, we don't go in that area because EOD doesn't sweep that. It's the impact area. So if we have a fire that's in the red, dude, life is easy. We go to a fire break out there and we just take our drip torches, which is basically just a, like a two and a half gallon can filled with 50% diesel, 50% gasoline. And it's got a little wick on it. You light the wick, you turn it upside down and dump it and you just dump fire on the ground. And we'll just, we'll just all, as the fire's running towards us, we'll just light the ground on front of us on fire and let it run back towards the, towards itself. And they just got one giant Stop fire, but, but we we can control where it starts at that point. So, yeah. Um, so we don't, we don't do any hell attack stuff. Um, like I said, being wild and firefighter would be awesome, but the biggest reason that stopped me from it is it's a seasonal job unless until mm. you can get hired on a full, uh, a full-time crew, which takes, you know, years you don't, you don't, it's like being here. You don't get to start out as a JTAC right away. You got to do your time as a, as your regular scout observer and, and work your way mm. up. Uh, and it, the, the pay is not, pay is not where I wanted it to be. Yeah. Yeah. I heard it's, I, I've heard that, that the pay is kind of garbage until you're in fire season and you're working constantly. And right. then that's when you kind of get your payment out of it. Um, man, I remember being a kid when I was a little kid, I used to, I, I, I don't know how I heard about it. I remember seeing, uh, the hot shots though, or the smoke jumpers. And I was like, man, that'd be such a cool job. Parachute <laughs> into the fire and put it out with a shovel, you know? And then as an adult, I'm like, eh, I mean, it sounds cool, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how cool that would be. That's the equivalent uh, of watching the, the Navy SEAL commercials where they pop up out of the water and go <laughs> to the beach and you're like, that's so cool. Until you do a boat raid and you're like, dude, I'm soaking wet. I'm chafing. All my gear is like 10 pounds heavier now and I'm yeah. covered in sand. This sucks. Yeah, he's been pissing in his wetsuit. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all that's happening. Uh, have you guys seen that documentary that or that docu-series, I guess you would call it, uh, Fire Chasers on Netflix? Yes. Not. That, it's pretty good. I, I mean, I, if it's – I was just looking at it a second ago. I think it's the same one I saw, but it, it follows, obviously, Cal Fire – um, and it talks extensively about their, um, inmate population that goes out and, and oh, does firefighting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one thing I do want to say, because I've watched, I've watched Joe Rogan quite a bit and he's talked about it a few times and they bring it up like on his show, like the firefighters that are doing it are being forced to go out and fight fires or something like that. And it's actually a really, it seems like a really good program where it's volunteer only, obviously, and they have to earn their spot. And it seems like most of the people want to, you know, get on it because they're low level criminals and it gets them outdoors. Like you were talking about Levi getting outside and working. Um, but it seems like an interesting way to maximize the use of this like population that needs some kind of skills. And in a place like California that burns up every year, like, and they always need firefighters in California, like, you know, during the fire season, it seems like a really good way to supplement the fire department. Um, does, is there any kind of program like that in either Ohio or Oklahoma? And what do you think about that program overall? Uh, we'll start with you, Q. Uh, nothing like that here in Ohio. Um, however, I like that program. I, I think it's really cool. Again, as long as it's voluntary, as long as, you know, the, the, the people are being treated appropriately and mm-hmm. um, as long as they can get their certifications so that they can work um, once they're cleared. Because, I mean, it's I, I, I'll I mean, me personally, this is the best job I've ever had. I, I, I say yeah. that unreservedly like I enjoyed being a Marine. I love you know, having the title of Marine and I made a lot of good 
friends in, in the Marine Corps and had some great times in the Marine Corps. But this job is awesome. Like it's super fulfilling for me personally. Um, you know, I'm helping people every day. Um, and I mean, everybody loves firemen. Uh, that's like, I, I always, I tell people, you know, you think about police officers and firemen and stuff like that, but firefighters are like the most selfless. It's one of the most selfless jobs you could have. People don't like police officers because they're detaining other, you know, people, you know, and that's obviously they're doing a lot of heroic stuff all the time. But the only time you ever really hear about police officers is when they're fucking something up and then everyone gets mad at them. Firefighters on the other hand are just going out to save people, you know, like, the biggest issue I think people probably have with firefighters is if they go a little, you know, they're a little overzealous with their application of water and flood out a whole house over <laughs> something that may, may, maybe not didn't need it. But sure. Um, I think, I do think you guys that, have anything like that in Oklahoma? No. Uh, again, 70% of the firefighters in America are, are volunteer and, and it's mostly because rural areas because Oklahoma is a very rural place. Mm. Uh, we have a lot of volunteer departments, and it's kind of – each department's a little different, uh, but most departments kind of have the standard of you can't have been a felon. Uh, you can't have, can't have had a DUI uh, in order to, to be on the department. And a lot of – the DUI thing is kind of iffy department-wise because, um, you know, obviously if you were 21 years old and did something stupid one time in your life and now you're, you know, 38 years old – and, you know, you can't you can't hold hold it against people. Where that comes in is insurance, um, because yeah. if you crash a fire truck, uh, well, if you're running lights and sirens somewhere and you get into an accident, it doesn't matter whose fault it is. It's your fault, is really what it comes oh, down really? to. Yeah, well, because you're the professional driver. You're trained. You're the one who is who is more than likely violating the traffic laws uh, by going maybe a little fast or rolling through a stop sign, et cetera. Um, but more importantly, you've been trained on how to, how to drive like that, hopefully. Uh, so you're supposed to be before you get behind the wheel, let's put it that way. But again, um, we don't so much. Have is it like, like the military? Is it like the military where like the junior guy drives normally? No, no. Um, it, well, so we'll talk, we'll talk paid department and volunteer department, uh, starting with volunteer department, um, it's kind of whoever gets there first and has passed the emergency vehicle driver's course gets to drive uh, out here. I drive about 50% of the time. Um, if I make a call at the volunteer department, unless, unless it's somewhere where if I show up and one of my, one of the guys on the volunteer department out here, who's actually a, a Lawton firefighter, uh, paid department, paid uh, municipal department firefighter. He grew up out here. Uh, so when they're like, Oh, it's at his address. He'll be like, Oh, that's, you know, Joe Bob Smith's place. I know where we're going. I know where the gate is to get into his field. Well, then he's going to drive because I don't. I don't have a clue who Joe Bob. Yeah, Smith it just makes is, more you know? sense. Right, and he and he knows the roads out here. He knows where the the load rated bridges and stuff are, and I don't. Um, but at that point, it's just kind of if like the, the last structure fire I went on with him, uh, I drove because he was doing officer stuff in the passenger seat, getting other resources. He's on the radio, getting other resources out there. Kind of mm-hmm. like the, the VC thing, um, uh, vehicle commander deal. In the paid department, the junior guy rides tailboard. You're in the back. Uh, for our department, if you don't have any certifications at all and you're, you're brand new, the only jo- the only seat you're qualified to ride in is what we call the plug man. And you're the guy who's catching the hydrant with the hose. And then you're basically handing tools to the firefighters that are going inside after that. Okay. Um, and so for me, I can ride. I can ride 
any of the seats in the back of the fire truck uh, where so I can be on the nozzle, I can be catching the plug. It, it doesn't really matter. Um, the guy in the front right seat, he's the crew chief. He's in charge. It's it's his vehicle. He it's his crew. He makes the calls. He's an officer. So for us, it's captains um, that ride in, captains or or higher that ride in the passenger seat, and the driver is usually the senior firefighter with all of his driver certifications. Um, and that's just kind of how we do it for emergency response. Now, when when we're like, hey, we have to run over to this building to you know go get our ladders tested or whatever. We'll take a junior guy who's trying to get his driver certifications and put him in the driver's seat and let him get some some time behind the wheel. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about you? Uh, what about on the uh, Cleveland side there, Q? Um, so for us, it's a little bit different. Um, so I, I'll start off with my smaller departments and I'll move up to Cleveland. So with Copley, um, they have two stations. Um, so everybody kind of needs to know how to drive. Um, everybody who gets hired on has either gone through or within their probationary period um, will go through EVOC uh, emergency vehicle operators course and they will be certified and know how to drive. Um, mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean you always get to drive. Uh, so for Copley, they're what's they're kind of this mashup between a full-time staff department supplemented by part-time staff. So I'm part-time there. So most of the time, the full-time guys will drive um, if we catch a working fire. Uh, For medical runs, I drive the ambulance and for one run, and then the next guy will drive, then the next guy will drive. So it's really kind of dependent there. Um, Medina, they have about six stations. Um, and, And they staff two during the weekdays so for nights and weekends we get page we get paged out if there's a fire um so again very similar to levi's situation uh we function in a volunteer role um you'll see generally speaking whoever gets there first will drive uh because i mean we all live in the city or we're within five miles of the station we're responding to so mm-hmm. um, however, if like for, for my station in Medina, uh, there's like two guys that are very familiar with the area as opposed to my familiar familiarity with it. So most of the time, one of those guys is always driving. However, there have been times where I drive or, you know, if we drive the ladder truck, there's not too many guys that are real comfortable with driving the ladder truck. So I usually end up driving the ladder truck, which is fine because I drove the ladder truck a lot in Cleveland. Uh, is the ladder truck, is that like, when you say ladder truck, is that like the really long one that has yes. like the dude in the back as well? Okay. So, well, so that's a little bit different. So you have a couple different types of vehicles. Usually the, the two most common types that people see is either the engine or the ladder. Sometimes the engine's mm-hmm. called the pumper. Um, but the engine uh, or pumper is the, the, the vehicle that is generally speaking responsible for putting the wet stuff on the hot stuff that's that's their their role um they're you know extending hose and running hose line and putting out the fire those those are the main guys for that your truck companies um which is that's the first company i started out with with cleveland fire um it's just it's a longer vehicle that has a ladder on the top it has an aerial ladder whether that be just a big big long ladder or whether it be a ladder with a bucket on the edge 
uh, on the end of it. Those are called towers. Um, now, the one you're talking about where the kind of uh, you got the driver cab and then you have the ladder and it pivots there in the middle between yeah. the cab and the um, ladder, that's called a tiller. So those you'll have um, a guy in the back, you know, steering the rear end of the tiller. Um, we don't have any tillers anymore um, just because we have a lot of narrow streets and they really kind of assessed the situation or like, oh, you guys don't need tillers anymore. So they took them. Uh, so that's a long story short, but there you go. Uh, like FDNY, they still have tillers. You know, other departments they still have tillers. Rural yeah. departments sometimes still have tillers. Well, and Q, Q if I the, can throw something in there, the, the the purpose of a tiller is because when you have a truck that's sixty feet long, it's hard to make those turns down the narrow alley. Sure. And so, being able to have a you know the tillers like FDNY uses a lot because they have those narrow streets where you you just can't make a turn in something that's twice as long as a school bus without having some sort of articulation in the middle. And so that that's what the tiller's for. The guy in the back controls the rear wheels and it just allows them, I mean, you can watch these guys, they can drive a circle through four separate alleyways around a building with buildings on either side. So that, that's the point of a tiller. Uh, but a lot of places don't have that just because they don't have the, the high building density and narrow yeah. streets that require it. They, they have one out here in Oceanside. Um, and uh hmm. yeah it looks like my video froze but oh well they had one out here in oceanside and like like two months ago i think a, a pickup truck t-boned it Ooh. as it was going through an intersection and i was like oh that has got to be an an expensive mistake to to run into one of those i think it actually hit it and flipped it over on its side like the back portion of the of the fire i could be wrong on that but wow yeah. he had to how be often, moving to do that yeah how often do you guys uh how often is like a you know do you see like a fire truck or an ambulance or something like that get involved into an accident because you know they're on their way to an emergency and someone's not hearing the siren or something like that and hits them or they you know whatever so well, here in rural oklahoma it's a little bit different uh lawton is is a relatively dense place We've only mm -hmm. had one accident in the last five years since I've been out here, and it was an ambulance that was going through an intersection. But the big thing is, is we, we're so the, the law says you're supposed to slow down, and move to the right for emergency vehicles. However, the law also says that as the emergency vehicle driver, you, we, we call them the your lights and sirens aren't the I'm demanding you give me the right of way. They're, we call them excuse me lights. It's your hey man, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and sneak past you real quick, but you're still if you blow through an inter if you have the red light at the intersection you go through the red light lights and sirens and all and hit somebody who has the green light you're at fault because they had the right of way um so huh. again it comes back to that evoc course it with you know now if you have the green light and somebody runs a red light and hits you okay you know it's just like anything else but um the issue we have and i'm sure i'm sure you can talk to this quite a bit um is you'll be you'll be coming up and it you know it's it's rush hour traffic time everybody's trying to go home and there's you know four or five cars lined up at the red light waiting to go and you come up behind them one of our things we just go ahead and turn our lights and sirens off and just wait in traffic with them because the last thing we need people people want to move out of your way so they'll just go through the red light and now you're risking them getting into an accident which will be their mm. fault for running a red light to get out of your way so you know, like especially the ambulances in Lawton, you know, if we come with that red light, we'll just 
kill the lights. If there's no way we can get around the traffic there, like going into the oncoming lane or going through the turn lane to go around them to go straight or whatever, we just turn the lights and sirens off. And once the light turns green, we'll flip them back on, and then everybody can get out of our way. I've actually, whenever I see a police a police car or like a fire truck like that that's like going and then they shut their lights off, I'm like, hmm, are they just trying to get through traffic and they just, you know, like they just did that to get through traffic? Or I'm like, did whatever the call was was just canceled? Because I know that's what a lot of people think. They'll see because I've I've actually seen a cop car come up to an intersection, flip his lights long enough to get through the intersection, and then just keep going. And I'm like. I'm like, dude, did you just run that light? Did you just like use your lights to run run that red light, or were you on an actual call? Do, <laughs> yeah, but we don't do that in the fire department. <laughs> if if you guys want to throw some shade at the police, <laughs> feel free because like three episodes ago, I had uh, what's the Ashley? Um, I'm pulling it up right now. Uh, I had a police officer come on. He he works for the he used to work for a department out here in California. Uh, he he got out as a or he retired as a detective, deputy sheriff two. Ashley Smitnick. That's uh, episode forty-one, and uh, I, I know it's funny. There's always a rivalry between the uh, police and police and fire departments about who's who secures the area, who's in the most danger, who's doing the most work. It's funny. It's a a good friendly rivalry. So, um, yeah, like I said, like Levi said, I can I cannot speak to what the police department does, or sheriffs, or highway patrol, whatever. Um, Although I will say Highway Patrol um, out here, they're definitely the most professional. But sometimes I'm like, man, you guys got your hats on too tight, man, because like <laughs> they don't let anything slide. But oh, um, really? Oh yeah, they. It, so, it is possible to get a ticket in a fire truck. Absolutely, it one hundred percent is. Uh, Do you know anybody that's gotten one? Yes, not personally. I don't. But, um, so kind of doubling back on the Levi's, uh, thing. So Cleveland, we at 27 stations. So at any given time, whether you're the new guy on the street or whether you're the senior man, you may be driving. It, it's just, you'll have to see what the deal is for that day. Usually the senior man likes to drive. Um, but it really depends. Like sometimes everybody else on your shift is off and, you got to drive today. Whereas in like, I know Detroit and I'm pretty sure New York, like they have dedicated chauffeurs. Like that's what their position is. You're the chauffeur and the pump operator. You have to test Mm -hmm. to get that position to drive. And that's what you do. Um, but so like for us, when, you know, rush hour traffic or something like that, we know we can't get around. We'll leave our lights on so that, you know, the people know that, Hey, we do need to get by when this is green light, but like, we'll turn our sirens off and we won't honk or anything like that. Cause again, like you said, you don't want to force somebody into an intersection, um, to have them get hit by a car. Um, same general speaking rules apply for us. Um, we, when we have our lights and sirens on and we're responding to an emergency by the letter of the law, we're allowed to exceed the speed limit by 10 miles an hour. That's it. Okay. So, um, you know, uh, even if you're going through a green light and, you know, you hit somebody, they're going to try and determine whether you are going faster than what you should have been. And what that's called is showing due regard for public safety. So if you, yeah. if you aren't showing due regard, then you're going to get hammered. Like that's, that's it. They're, they're not going to save you. Um, however, you know, if you're following all the rules and doing what you're supposed to, then y- you'll be protected. But 
even for us, like even when we're running lights and sirens, we're still very, very careful even coming up to green lights because, I mean, pulling out of the station, going through green lights. I mean, I've been on my way to a fire, lights, sirens, the cue alarm, which is that that cat sounding, that wind up. Yeah. Swinging the cat, we call it. Uh, it's the one that causes my neighbor's dog to start barking. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, all three of those, plus I'm honking as I come up to the intersection and as I go through. I've still had people blow through the intersection and cut me off. Like it's, it's mm. the craziest thing. You in the would world be surprised how many people don't care that you are on the way to an emergency. Oh, they don't uh, care. You'd, be, you'd be surprised at, at, you know, I mean, I know Skip Mark and me, we, we see it every day, but you, you would yeah. really, the average person would be surprised how many people just don't care yeah. that there's a fire truck or an ambulance behind them and won't pull over for you. Won't right. let you around them. How, yeah, how they just, well, the, you know, well, not my the, emergency, yeah, not my problem. The general person is an asshole anyway, or the average person is just an asshole anyway. So, I mean, I don't know how surprised I'd actually be because I've realized how much people like the, the little regard that people give for anybody else, you know, especially right, right now when this whole like COVID thing is going on, you see how people go to the stores and buy all, buy, buy up like an entire shelf of one item and basically saying, fuck you to everybody else. You know, that's just kind of how people are. But <clears throat> I did want to ask you guys, how has this whole coronavirus thing kind of, uh, has it has it changed the way that you guys are operating when you go to a call, especially like an emergency, like a medical call, uh, compared to what you were doing, like maybe in December? We'll start with you, Q, because I know you're, first, mun- you're municipal and you're um, probably. So for us, it, it, it was, it was a very rapidly evolving situation. Um, as far as things went, so before uh, before Governor DeWine shut down everything, um, when when Corona was first kind of being talked about on the table, and they were saying, "Oh, this is infectious and it's really spreading," they were saying, "Okay, so the fire department will not respond to any suspected COVID cases." That was the first thing to come down the pipe, and then. It, it, it was just like, so you get, when we get toned, when we get dispatched for a call, we have, mm-hmm. we have our little red phones in the station that ring and that's the dispatcher calling us and they tell us, you know, how old the person is, the gender and the nature of the emergency and any special instructions. So usually it'll be something. And it, just like as an example, it would be like, Hey, you know, engine 20, you have a 65 year old male short of breath um, at one, two, three, four main street um, med 20 will be, you know, coming with you. Okay, cool. And that's all the information you get sometimes. Um, well, most of the time that's all the information you get. So, you know, you show up and all I know is that it's short of breath. Now in, the boss, you know, who rides in, who rides shotgun will have a little computer that may give him some more details about the call, but most of the time it doesn't, you know. Um, so he may say, oh, you know, the person's been coughing or whatever. And like, oh, OK, cool. You know, so you, you go in with your med bags, not knowing what to expect. And, you know, that's when you start your real big time serious information gathering from the patient. And, you know, sometimes patients will lie to you. Sometimes they just aren't good historians and they don't know uh, that they don't have a good time frame of 
you know, what's been going on with them, or sometimes they've had these symptoms for a long time and now they're calling you at 2 a.m. So you really never know what you're walking into. You know, that headache could be a full on stroke and this person's dying, you know. Um, so at first they were like, okay, fire department's not going to re- respond to any suspected COVID cases. So we're like, okay, well, then we found that we were going on all these shorter breath calls that seem like they might be COVID. So then they were like, okay, well, that's unsustainable. So um, just wear, you know, a surgical mask when you go in. And then like a week later, it was like, okay, now you need to wear a surgical mask and glasses. Okay, so on every call, you're going to wear a surgical mask and glasses. And then on suspected COVID cases, you're going to wear um, the safety goggles and the N95 breathing mask. Okay, if it's a confirmed case, then you're going to wear, you know, your SCBA and, you know, goggles. uh, Well, not goggles because you have a face mask on, uh, but you'll wear, you know, the whole suit. And it's just like. A fire okay. suit or like a hazmat suit? So you would wear, it, it, it's not quite a hazmat suit. Like technically speaking, it is, but it's like a, a lower level. Are you talking level about the level B suit. Tyvek suits? Yeah, well, it's it's that, that kind of cloth thing. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I, basically, I, you're, it, you're showing up in, in mop gear that just basically stops bodily fluids from right. coming through is, mm-hmm. what, is what he's talking about. So it, you okay. know, it just it, it rapidly changed for us. And then, you know, there, there are some situations where, like, people will come up and ring the, the department doorbell or knock on our door. Like, hey, you know, I have so and so is having a problem here. You know, so now the depart the, the, the departments generally stay all sealed up. And, you know, if, if somebody's got something going on, we have to talk to them through the glass like we don't open the door unless it's an actual emergency for that person. So that that's really what's changed for us. But I mean, other than that, I mean, we're still going on calls, you know, but how many, how many confirmed COVID cases have you, have you had to deal with? Um, let's see. Actual confirmed. I think I've had one actually. Um, we we shut down pretty quickly. Uh, the state of Ohio yeah. shut down pretty quickly um, once we had some cases. But uh, there's been a lot of scares. Like so, when it first went down, we actually responded to a call. It was, you know, without violating too much HIPAA here, um, we responded to a seventy-something-year-old male. Um, two days ago, he was. Well, the call came in as short of breath. 72-year-old male, short of breath. So we go to the call, and then we find out once we get there, like, his daughter-in-law is outside, and and she gives us all the information. She's like, oh, you know, he works at a building with a person who is exposed or who who tested positive for COVID at the time he Mm -hmm. was working. Two days ago, he was normal, and now he's bedridden, barely Mm -hmm. responds to, you know, verbal stimulus. Um... He's super hot, and he's been coughing a lot. So we're just like, oh, this dude has COVID. Like, no question about it, generally speaking. You know, obviously we're not doctors, and we couldn't test him on the spot. But we're like, I mean, he has almost all the symptoms. So mm-hmm. then we actually had to call the CDC, and the CDC was telling us exactly how to handle it. And it was just, 
it was this big cluster like early on and you know shortly thereafter like i said governor dewine shut everything down but you know we we've had a couple cases like that where this person meets generally speaking all the wickets for suspected corona and then we take them to the hospital they go get tested and they're like oh well it's not corona it's just double pneumonia which double pneumonia is horrible as well but you know at least it's not yeah. corona so yeah. What about you, Levi? Have you, uh, I, like you said before, you're, you're on base and your, your demographic there is definitely younger and healthier. And this is obviously a disease or a virus that's affecting the older population. I think they're, you know, almost everybody they're saying is dying is over the age of 70 and like overweight. So you probably haven't experienced it as much, but what kind of changes have you seen at your department, uh, on the federal level? So being federal, um, the, the tail is wagging the dog, uh, for us, <clears throat> we, because Fort Seal does have rotational units, we have a lot of a lot of buildings that are on quarantine status because they were in South Korea, they were in Germany, they were in Italy, they were, mm. you know, Spain, wherever the unit happened to be, and they come back from a deployment, and they're automatically quarantined for 14 days because they might have it. Um, also, the, the the only VA clinic within 100 miles is on Fort Seal. So we, you know, those, all those old and not in the best shape people are there. And, and one thing that's kind of a, a little bit of an understatement, um, like, like Quint was talking about that shortness of breath call, man, if I had a nickel for every time somebody had shortness of breath, whether they're young or old or whatever, it, that's what it is. I mean, we get soldiers shortness of breath. Well, what were you doing? Well, we were doing, we're, we're doing the Murph. And I just yeah. I couldn't breathe. I'm like, well, did you ever think it's maybe because you're running a Murph? Like, you know, <laughs> a mile run, 100 pull-ups, 200 squats, 300, you know, pull, or whatever. I'm like, dude, yeah. Uh, or, you know, um, have someone's having a panic attack. Uh, but the where we run into the issue, it's hard for us, is that we know our, our demographic. However, family comes to visit the people that live in in base housing, you know, and so mm-hmm. grandma and grandpa came to, you know, spend their grandson's third birthday at, at Fort Sill and that where did they come from? Uh, and again, because it, because we're federal, um, we, you know, we, we've had, I think, I think we've only had maybe 10 cases actual confirmed of, of COVID on Fort Sill and they were all, Hey, I've, I've been out of the country in places where it was much higher and came yeah. back uh, so it, it, the quarantine process is a little bit easier because we have a controlled, a, a more controlled demographic. Um, but for us, yeah, we, we definitely have taken, uh, extreme precautions with stuff. Uh, we've kind of altered how we run on calls now, instead of the closest, unless, unless it's an actual life threat, if somebody is needing CPR or it, it's a legitimate life and death situation, we only have one truck that'll run on base. Cause you know, Fort Sill is not that big. Uh, that'll run to those medical calls and and kind of help the ambulance be there to help the ambulance out. But we mostly just let the Fort Sill ambulance handle it unless it's a legitimate life threat. If it's somebody who says, man, I just don't feel good. I think I might be sick. And they call 911. Mm-hmm. Hey, man, ambulance, that's you. But if if somebody calls and, you know, we, we have a we have a, a situation where like a while back we had a, a guy who was like, my wife stopped breathing. I'm doing CPR on her right now. I need help. Then we will oh, absolutely shit. run to that, you know. Um, so, but we, yeah, we're running in hazmat, hazmat suits, not the level a, again, not the monsters Inc suits, but we have, they're called Tyvek suits. And imagine like a really, really hefty 
55 gallon trash bag turned into mm-hmm. a bodysuit. Uh, okay. And then, so we were, we wore that with, you know, the gloves and stuff to go over it. And then we have decon kits where we basically spray ourselves down with a, like a Lysol solution. Um, and we get our trucks sprayed out three times a week. We, there's people that get paid to spray this stinky. It's like a citrus with a hint of throw up smell, uh, <laughs> stuff inside of our fire trucks. Sounds go, wonderful. Oh yeah, no, it's awful. You got to, and you wait, you know, 10 minutes for it to dry and get in and the inside of the truck stinks for the next half hour. But, um, yeah, we, that are, it's, it's kind of altered in that aspect for us, uh, just because we're, you know, the government's trying to get a handle on this thing, but where, where we really see the impact is not so much on the fire service. It's, it's in our community that we have. Um, we had a, uh, a lady in housing. She had a, a pipe or something burst in her, for whatever reason, government contractors, they put the laundry rooms upstairs in these two story duplexes. Uh, and <laughs> okay. yeah, so makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, um, the, uh, every now and then a pipe will burst or the washing machine will fail catastrophically and the water will be pouring out in the second story. Well, nobody knows that because it's just a couple of bedrooms and they're downstairs, you know, watching TV. And all of a sudden there's water pouring through the floor into the ceiling of the downstairs and it sets their smoke alarm off. And that's tight. And their smoke detectors are tied into the system. So anytime they go off it at a residence, um, if more than one activates, then it alerts the fire department. So we show up down there and this poor lady's got three inches of standing water downstairs and we're trying to help. And she just moved into the house and we're trying to help, you know, clean up the water. It's not really our job, but we, we are public servants. You know, we, 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 we don't always get to fight fire. Sometimes we get to do the not, not as fun stuff. And she mm-hmm. was, she was talking about how they're going to, they were saying they're going to have to put her in a hotel while they, you know, renovate the house. And she's like, yeah, my husband comes back from wherever he was on Friday, which was, you know, this is like a Wednesday. And she goes, and he's supposed to be quarantined at home. What's going to happen? Like, well, he's going to be quarantined for two weeks in the barracks. So it's just kind of a bummer for her because that's two weeks longer that her and her daughter don't get to see the husband and dad because they're going to be in a hotel out in town and the, you know, and he's going to be stuck in the barracks. So have either one of you guys experienced any kind of equipment shortage because of this? I know the N95 masks were like, you know, all that was happening. Both we of, cannot yeah? get N95s to save our life, man. Yeah. Uh, we've got the we, all the stuff we had, and it's it's one of those like, hey, use this if you need it, but let's not let's not use it just to use it. Um, the, believe it or not, the federal government's having trouble getting a hold of some of this stuff too. So yeah. the reason I laughed is because I just reposted uh, uh, one of our union. Uh, members posted a uh, a thing on how Cleveland Fire Department's actually using expired N95 masks and how the the bands don't hold up and whatnot. Um, so yeah, absolutely, we're we're experiencing equipment shortage. What does that mean, though? What does that mean when a mask is expired? So basically, the mask itself is not necessarily expired, but it's the the bands that hold the mask onto your face. So it's yeah. just, I mean, essentially just think about a rubber band strapping to the back of your head and this, you know, what happens to an old rubber band that's been worn out and used, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have elasticity anymore. So the thing doesn't stay tight to your face. So the particulates can get in essentially mm-hmm. past your mask. So, you know, that's, I think that's it's, a big concern there. I think it's really, it's, it's a weird one. So one here in California, I'm in San Diego. If I go out right now, if I go to the grocery store, 
about 80% of the people are wearing some sort of mask. Sure. Anywhere from a homemade cloth mask to like an N95 mask. I know, as well as I'm sure you know, the cloth mask is giving you about 5% protection from spreading a virus to anybody. It's basically nothing. Like, you're not getting anything from that. And I think it's kind of some places. uh, My buddy, Michael Farrell, who's been on the show a few times, he was saying he went to, he's a plumber, so he's he's a service plumber, so he's out doing calls all day. They're still working and everything. And he said he went to this uh, Mexican place to get like a burrito or something for lunch. And he didn't have a mask and they wouldn't, they wouldn't serve him. They kicked him out. They actually kicked him out of the place for not having a mask, even though it's not a requirement. Sure. And like, to me, that seems so like ridiculous and crazy because one, even if I wanted to get an N95 mask, that's what you need or surgical mask, which is your next best thing. Neither one of them are available. Like those are even like you guys, emergency services and hospitals and stuff are having a hard, hard time getting it. And two, it's like, if I put on this stupid cloth mask or like the Marine Corps is making their dudes wear neck gaiters (laughs) over their face, that's doing no, that's doing nothing except for make you look like an idiot. You know? Um, I think the only benefit it really provides because Fort Sill implemented a thing. If you are, going to go inside the the shopettes the px the commissary you have to have a mask on so we had to go in the commissary the other day and we're all wearing stupid cloth masks and, and again my opinion only i i i think it's it's completely asinine um and it's just one of those well at least we're doing something uh, right. the only thing i can really see that it helps out with is there's a lot of people that don't feel the need to, you know, cover their mouth when they cough or sneeze. Oh, so yeah. at, at least that's those are the worst happening. But you know, don't you think that's don't you think that the the requirement that some places are saying for people to wear a mask like that is also causing help or extending the shortage of masks that we have because yeah. now now okay, well I'm going to go to the grocery store. I'm going to wear my mask, you know. And you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to reuse them. So. Like, what am I going to do? Every time I go out of the house, I'm going to get a new mask. Like, it's just. Yeah, we, we yeah, it's, like, once we use ours, we have to put, a, we have paper bags that we literally just, okay, you get off of the call. Unless it was, con, unless it was highly suspected that it was Corona, then once you get back in the rig, you take your mask off and you put it in this bag and you let it dry out, you know, and, and that's supposed to kill everything or whatever. Or, you know, you have a, a solution that you can aerosolize and spray on it that will kill you know whatever bacteria but yeah i think i think part of that you know kind of contributes but at the same time you know sometimes sometimes the best medicine you can give someone is reassurance really i mean like so in in some of these cases they're reassuring people and they're making people feel better about the whole situation hey i'm all for it man if 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 you need that to make you feel better, fine, dude. Like if you want to rub yourself down with barbecue sauce and that makes you feel better, do it like fine. But, um, at least it has made people a little bit more co- uh, conscious about like coughing and, and, and spreading germs, you know, so that that's a plus. I mean, you know, just kind of I definitely quit. think about what I definitely think about what I'm touching more. Like, sure. oh, I'm like, oh shit, I just touched my face again. Oh well, shit, you know, like you know, as far as this coughing thing goes, like like you said, nobody covers their mouth. And and a quick story about that, um, two, not last Christmas, but the Christmas before that, um, I got walking pneumonia from a patient, basically. Um, and what happened was she she was sick, had fever. Uh, shortness of breath is the call we got at 2 a.m. 
So not only are we get up, getting up in the middle of the night, but we're going to this patient. So I'm down there taking vitals. I'm listening to her lung sounds, and she coughs directly in my face. Like the full what a bitch. splatter <laughs> of the particulate that she ejected hit me square on the side of my face. Let me tell you something. I am not for violence against women and I, I i'm not for violence against anybody but i have never wanted to backhand somebody so badly in my life you know and, and again i understand she's sick i understand she's not feeling well she's got a fever whatever but are you serious like this goes this goes back to people are assholes in general and huh. they don't care about anybody else it, it's like these people you see going to the grocery store and cough on stuff it was, it's it like dude terrible. and, and i got dude, i got ridiculous. so sick for christmas and i i just happened to luckily my my shift i was off for that time period but i was just like are you effing kidding me and like all the guy like i turned around and you know the boss and the two other firefighters are just kind of looking at me and they're like ooh, <laughs> you know? ooh you're a zombie now right <laughs> He's infected. You know, yeah. you know, Q, it's, fu- it's funny. Uh, I want to throw this out there. We talk about, you know, having to be the bigger man and, and you know, people just are stupid. Uh, well, again, I we run to the barracks a lot uh, for whatever reason. Uh, somebody thought it was a good idea to put kitchenettes in all the barracks rooms uh, for for these kids. And none of Big them know how to cook. out there. Well, none of them know how to cook, man. It, it, it's awful. <laughs> So, and because it's the barracks, when they set their smoke alarm off, it's not just a quick silence. It's the entire, the panel goes off and alerts dispatch. So we make a, a full response because basically the panel says, Hey, we detected conditions are right that there could be a fire in the building. So here we mm-hmm. come screaming up, getting fully dressed. And this is never at, you know, four thirty, five o'clock at night. It's, you know, three in the morning on a Sunday morning that this kid is super drunk, decides he wants to cook or vape in his room. Uh, but we had it. We had, so we have this our, our frequent flyer building to run to, and we go into that. And usually, what happens is all the kids are standing outside. And we'll be like, "Hey, whose room was it?" As the chiefs go into the panel to see what what it says, somebody be like, "It was me. I was trying to cook some bacon, and it got too smoky." Uh, because one of these buildings is it's the Warrior Transition Unit, and it was an old barracks building that they had for the guys coming back from Iraq that needed to be like, "Hey, here's your here's your week long cool down before we send you home on leave." So mm-hmm. it's like suicide proof. None of the windows open. You know, it, it's like a Vegas hotel. So these kids will smoke up the room and they can't do anything about it because they can't open a window. They can't ventilate the room anyway. But anyway, we go to this one and we're like, you know, whose room is it? They're like, oh, it's, you know, room 310. We're like, okay, well, where's 310's occupant? Come, you know, come let me in your room so I don't have to go back to the truck and get my key. And mm-hmm. like, well, I think he left. What do you mean he left? So anyway, yeah, I'm tired. This is the third time running the building that night. We go up there and, and this kid comes up with us and he's like, Oh yeah, that's my room. And he's clearly just, he's drunk as a skunk. And we open, he opens the door and it just, it smells like an ashtray. It's just, he'd clearly been smoking in his room. And I asked him, I was like, Hey man, you've been smoking in your room. He goes, no. I was like, well, what were you doing? He goes, well, I was asleep. And I said, okay, well, why does it smell like cigarette smoke in your room? You know, your room set the, the smoke, smoke detector off. What happened? He goes, well, maybe the shower was too steamy, which is a legit thing. They're very sensitive heads. And if they take a really steamy shower and, pop the door open too quick it will it will set the head up the smoke detector off i was like well i thought you were sleeping 
And the shower had been running, but the bathroom just reeked of cigarettes. So he's smoking in his bathroom, hoping that running the shower and the fan cover it up. Yeah, yeah. this kid, this kid's really drunk, and it was me and, and one of the, a guy who's junior to me were upstairs, and my my boss was down at the at the panel downstairs. So we're on the third the third deck in this kid's room, and uh, my my partner's got the door propped open, and this kid's like, he's like, I don't know what happened. Now. I said, Look, dude, just stop lying to me. I you and I both know you were smoking in this room. Don't do it again because if you do, we'll call the MPs. They will show up, they will take you to the brig, and then in the morning, your command can get you out. And he, he just sits there, and, and he bows up to me. He's like, well, I don't want to have to do that. And I, dude, he, 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 he you know, puffed his chest out and stepped towards me, and I pushed him backwards, and I looked at my buddy. I was like, close the door. And this kid's eyes were just huge. I was, I was ready to <laughs> throttle through all this kid. My partner's like, uh, I was like, close the door. He closed the door, and I, I was, like, poking this guy in the chest. I'm like, listen, dude, it's 3 in the morning. You're the reason we're here. I was like, I, you are not going to talk to me like that. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, man. So I was just like, you know what? Here's the deal. If we come back to this building again tonight, I don't care if it's you that set it off or it's someone else. If we come back to this building tonight, I will call the MPs, and, you know, I'm just going to get you arrested so I don't have to deal with this. And yeah. But, like, I, I, was, I was about five seconds away from hitting this kid, and I, that's not the right thing, and I'm glad it – I had enough self-control to not do it but dude it gets uh, really I can't old Im- dealing with people like that in the middle of the night i was gonna say i can't imagine like there both of you probably have like your regular you know there's that there's a place you always end up going mm-hmm. and the people you always end up dealing with you know your regular customers if you want to call them anything but i, I don't know man the general like i said like i keep saying the general public for for the most part only cares about themselves and they're kind of assholes and i i wouldn't want to deal with them on a daily basis so Shout out to both you guys for uh, for doing that. Um, we are at almost two and a half hours. So is there, which is crazy, this feels like it doesn't even feel like it went that long at all. Right. Is there anything you guys want to talk about before before we end it? Or? Uh, yeah, one, one thing, him and I were actually, we had a conversation on the phone this morning. Uh, I got off work and I called him. Um, one thing that is interesting that I think that your audience might enjoy hearing is uh, him and I, we basically just talked about how much this job, the fire service has kind of opened our eyes to leadership and how, you know, the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps teaches leadership. We're really good at that, but how little I knew, even as a staff sergeant, how little I actually knew about being a good leader uh, from the Marine Corps to, to the fire service. Um, And it's, it's one of those things that there's for anybody who's looking at potentially doing this, this job, there is so much crossover uh, between the whole, you know, JJ did tie buckle and all that stuff, but you can just really see the, uh, you don't know what you don't know. And leadership mm-hmm. in the Marine Corps and leadership in the fire service, while there's a lot of similarities, there is a lot of, a lot of differences. In some ways, the fire service has got a, uh, it, it, I don't say it's better, but it's, it's, it's a different level of, of leadership. Um, and you know, I was, I was telling, I was telling Q about, uh, one of the station chiefs I have, uh, he's not my favorite person. Um, he is, he is very, he, well, he's, he's like the senior guy in the department. His, his comp date, which is they take when you started federal service and add all your military time in. And that date is your comp date for your retirement and stuff. His comp dates in like 1989. So oh, I mean, okay. he, he, he's been there for forever and he is, yeah. I mean, he's got a short fuse. Sometimes he's really awesome. Sometimes he'll throw a fit about something and you just kind of, no, I'm just going to go, go into the bay and look at the fire truck for a little while until you calm down. Um, but 
even still with things like that, you get, you know, he's the kind of guy that he's, he can be a jerk, but he's, he's smart. He knows what he's doing. And like where I don't like working with him, uh, to be honest, I really don't, but I got a lot of respect for the guy uh, because being, being on, on fire scenes, being on, being in a vehicle accident. I mean, the guy's, he's a constant professional in that aspect. It's just all the daily life stuff that, that he, yeah, he he's yeah. kind of rooted, but uh, he, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I thought was cool that I thought the, is very Mattis-esque of him, if you will, uh, that, you know, it w- was awesome was uh, Christmas Day. I, I was this last year. I worked the 23rd and 24th and I got off work on the 25th. And normally shift change goes at eight o'clock. Most guys show up around 730, 745 to relieve you. Um, this guy, I was 615. I'm sitting there mopping the floor of the station. I'm the only one awake. And he walks in the door and he's like, hey, dude, give me the mop. Uh, hand him the mop. He's all right. Go home. Merry Christmas. And you got the station captain relieving the lowest guy on the totem pole at that station to go home and have Christmas with his family. So um, that's awesome. Yeah, there's there's so much. I don't know. There that that's a whole another topic on itself. But uh, Q, I don't know if you had anything you want to add to that. But there's I being being on the fire department has has really opened my eyes to leadership traits and stuff that. I knew about, but it's just different than what you expect in the Marine Corps. You know, it, it's, it's yeah. a really cool experience. Yeah, the application is different. It's funny because this is the second episode in a row that JJ Did Die Buckle has come up. <laughs> yes. uh, the the last one, uh, Matt Ketting, he was a former, you know, he was in recon, got out. He runs a business out in Vegas now, uh, the uh, Invictus International. And he's saying that he has those, he has that written on his board, like that he looks at every day. And he's like, thinks about what he's, you know, what, which ones he accomplished well that day and which ones he didn't. So it's funny that stuff like that sticks with Marines, like even beyond their service, you know? Absolutely. Um, I, I would, I would definitely echo the same things that Levi said. Um, so I'll, I'll leave that for you. I think you said that pretty well. Um, but I guess a piece of advice for, you know, anybody coming out of the Marine Corps and coming into like the fire service or the police department or, you know, the EMS field. Um, yes, combat prepares you. Yes, the Marine Corps prepares you and the service prepares you for this service. And there are, I, I mean, it's literally the same, but it's completely different at the same time. Um, so, you know, if you come in with that ethic of, you know, all right, I know I'm going to be the junior man. I'm just going to bust my ass. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to let my actions speak for me rather than my resume. Um, if if you come in like that, you know, it's, you'll be fine and you'll do well. Keep your eyes open, keep your ears open and absorb and study as much as you can and learn from the guys find that grumpy old crusty bastard who's just you know like i i had like one of my first days i was sitting at they invited me to sit down at the kitchen table and we're just i'm listening to the the guys talk about the last shift and one of the senior guys walked in and, you know, I didn't know him. This is my first time meeting him. I like, stand up. Oh, hey, how you doing? My name's Quentin Brown. He's like, yeah, nice to meet you. Get the fuck out of my chair. And I'm like, what the hell, dude? You know, but I just, you know, take it on the tin and keep on moving. Um, but what you do in combat will somewhat prepare you. What you do in the Marine Corps will somewhat prepare you. But And I'll give this example. 
my first fire, which was, I think, my uh, like maybe sixth or seventh <laughs> shift or something like that, full-on working fire. We had been responding to false alarms all day, and it was like two or three in the morning, and you know, on every fire call, we, we, we get all geared up just in case it's a real thing, you know, so I'm, and in the fire truck, once you're geared up, I'm riding backwards because my tank is on, but it's mm-hmm. locked into the seat. So I'm riding backwards and, um, you know, my senior man just real calmly, calmly looks over. He's like, Hey, fire's on your side. I'm like, what? He's like, fire's on your side. I'm like, okay. And it's again, it's two or three in the morning. So it's pitch black. I look over and I mean, just this orange glow from down the street. And I'm like, Ooh, you know, Here we go starts racing. And you're like, Oh my God, we're doing it. We're doing it. You know? And we, we get up there and literally the whole side of this two and a half story home is engulfed in flames. And he's like, all right, kid, you're up, you're going in. And you know, you're just like in the Marine Corps, your training kicks in and you're hooking and jabbing and doing your thing. Um, but, you know, just just keep in mind that sort of thing. Just be willing to do the the shit job sometimes. Be willing to do the grunt work that's not necessarily get glamorous because you build up credit and rapport with your yeah. guys and they see you work hard. They'll t- they'll absolutely take care of you. Like when I walked into the fire department, I you can feel the experience when you walk into a old firehouse like that with senior guys who know what they're doing and you listen to them, they may be grumpy, they may be crabby and they may not want to, you know, see the millennials on the job. But, you know, if you show them you're willing to work hard, show up and and do your job, they'll take care of you. They'll teach you and you'll, you'll do some kick-ass things. So, yeah, I think, I think that's, I mean, that's awesome advice. I think anybody that gets out and, and tries to flex their military experience as a way to garner some kind of a respect at their new job is just kind of setting themselves up for failure. Like you said, you need to go in, you're the new guy. So you're going to be doing the new guy shit yep. that nobody likes to do. And you got to earn your, you got to earn your spot. The, the big difference for me, and I, I think people don't really think about it sometimes is that firefighters and police officers they go and train and they learn how to take care of fires and they learn how to, you know, go through and do these like stuff for like police officers going through and working with criminals and shit like that. But they're actually putting that stuff into practice daily. Whereas the military, you're training and training and training and training. And then maybe a year or two into it. Okay. Hey, now we're going to deploy. And then even if you deploy, you may not get to go do some of the stuff that you train to do. Whereas it's legitimately like every day, police officers are going out interacting with the public, you know, a lot of times on the worst day that those people have ever had, you know, and the same with you guys. So, I mean, yeah, that's definitely something I think uh, people should realize before they get out and stuff like that and, and try to try to go into a, you know, any, any kind of field that involves danger, you know, it involves life and death decisions that are realistic and and happening. Um, There was something else I was going to ask you. Oh, on the training piece. Who do you think's better? Who's more thorough for your training? Do you think the military was more thorough in training, or do you think that your your career in the fire department has been more thorough for the training? Uh, Both of you. You can start with. Uh, we'll start with Levi. I think um, it it kind of it kind of it's a double edged sword there. Uh, treading treading lightly down down the the blade there. Uh, I think. <laughs> yeah, sorry. The, the, I don't yeah, want to no, get you in trouble. No, no worries. No, um, the the military now. With me being a federal, federal firefighter, firefighter, the majority, the majority of, people of people 
are, are actual, actual like veterans. Uh, we have very few non-veteran firefighters. Uh, it's there's a lot of that military crossover because everybody was in the military at one point. Uh, what I will say is that um, we drill a lot more in-house um, at the fire station because we we can. Uh, uh, you know, if we if we need to go shoot artillery or drop bombs on aircraft, I mean, you got to schedule the range, you got the aircraft, you got to have the you know, get everybody down there. Get them, there's, there's a lot of moving parts for us. I mean, we can pull the fire truck out on the apron, which is just the fancy word for the big long driveway. Um, we can pull the fire truck out there and start pulling hose off and connect to a hydrant and and spray water, and we we can drag hoses around the inside of the the, the bay where we park our fire trucks, and we can you know we can practice things like that without ever leaving mm-hmm. our house for for that 48-hour shift um and then you know to go burn we can take you know we can take our engine company out of service to go out to the training tower and have somebody have somebody cover our area for a couple hours while we're gone uh so so there is that aspect of it but there is a lot of it um i don't want i don't want to call it the the bs training but but the bs training because we are federal so we have to do our uh sexual awareness classes and our terrorism awareness and our don't, you know, don't go telling everybody, you know, your OPSEC stuff. And, and yeah. I, had to, I had to go to a customer service class to, to be able to provide good customer service. And it, it just all sorts of, all sorts of goofy things like that. A lot of that stuff gets kind of, it, it's, it's like, Hey, Hey boot, make sure you put my name on the roster. I'll be at the, I'll be at the MWR, you know, <laughs> sleeping in a recliner. Um, so it, I don't know. I think that the the fire service, you get more real, like you were saying, a lot of my training was OJT. It's like, hey, we're rolling up on this giant grass fire. Uh, you ever sprayed mm-hmm. Class A foam uh, in a wildland setting? No. They're like, well, you're going to do it today. And now they've got me, you know, fighting fire away that I hadn't before or, or whatever. So there's a lot of real world on the job training uh, that yeah. you don't get with the military, but the benefit you get with the military is repetition. And repetition is kind of hard because while we go out to train for, you know, for fires and stuff, we have a lot of collateral duties and other things that we have to do during the day that we can't just say this week, all we're doing from, you know, Sunday through Friday is we're going to be out training like you can with the military. So uh, it, it goes both ways, but I think that, um, where, where I'm at in my career, still still relatively new, uh, I'm at a station with a lot of senior guys, so there's a lot of emphasis on, hey, what we've been doing this for 15 years. What does this guy need to know? And, and it's, uh, it's very beneficial for me. Yeah. Um, I think for my side of the town, um, it, it, you know, very similar to Levi, except for, you know, the live burns. The live burns take a little bit more coordination for us, um, you know, because we have to get get the house and then, you know, make sure that it's it, it has the right materials in it. Like you can only burn hay and wood of a certain type, you know. Um, so the, li- the actual like live burns are a little bit more involved. But like I said, I mean, it, it doesn't cost you anything to pull your apparatus into the back and pull some hose, practice throwing ladders, going through pump operations, you know, running through medical scenarios, doing map tests, you know, running drills, whatever. We can do all that stuff. And the, like you said, the training we do is almost always on a daily basis applicable, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems sometimes that 
when you train on something, well, then that's the call you're going to get that day. You know, it's just sometimes it works out like that. Um, so, you you know, it's good to that aspect, but you know, sometimes you run into, um, a point where like you, you are doing a little bit of BS training, um, like we, we have like a online program that we have to do a, a few, like, like you said, sexual harassment things and customer service. Like we have a few of those. I, I, I don't think any organization you, that you government organization you're a part of, you're going to get away from that. It, it, you yeah, know, it's you're moved not to that, that now, you know, everybody has yeah. their version of Marine net where they do some sort of online courses or Marine online where they're doing mm. some sort of, stupid course however there are a lot that you know are good but you know sometimes like levi said like hey uh hey cadet you're going to here's my username and password you're gonna go in and maybe take a look at this for me and make a study guide <laughs> sort of thing you know not um, that that's ever actually happened right. it's all theoretical yeah, right all theoretical stuff um spitballing so but yeah the, the training is definitely uh, more applicable. And, and the great thing is like you have senior guys who have, you know, like, okay, Hey, here's what happened on this call. I'm going to put you in this scenario and you run through it. And then he debriefs you. He's like, okay, here's what you did. Here's kind of what I saw that worked on this call or, Hey, cool. I've never seen it done like that. We've just discovered a new technique that we're going to put into practice. So it, it, it can be really, really beneficial. Nice. Well, hey, I appreciate you guys coming on the show, man. I think uh, I, you probably didn't expect this to be all fire department stuff, but it's. Uh, I think it's going to be really beneficial for anybody that may be interested in the fire service after they get out and stuff like that. And uh, both of you guys have great, you know, backgrounds. And I hope for the people that may not have looked at your episodes before, I hope they go back and listen to your your military histories and stuff like that. And again, I'll have you guys on at some other point too, and we'll we'll deep dive into maybe some of your military stuff as well and then get updates on what's been going on with your uh, first responder jobs now. Um, but uh, thanks for coming on the show. And um, yeah, if there's, if you want to throw out your social media or any kind of organizations that you want to, I know, I know Quentin, you guys were running a fundraiser not too long ago. So if there's anything like that, you guys want to put out there for the general public, go ahead and this is your time. Um, go go so, ahead, Q. That's, uh, that's all you. I don't have anything. I just have <laughs> a Facebook page. So it's, that's all you, man. So first off, I want to want to thank everybody who, you know, supported me for that. Uh, we had, it was the fight for air climb, uh, climbed key bank tower, the tallest building in the city of Cleveland climbed 58 floors in full turnout gear with an air pack on. Uh, it was absolutely miserable, but I'm going to do it again next year. Uh, what does all that weigh? Uh, so it weighs approximately 50 something odd pounds on top of your 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 weight already. So I'm 265, 63 and then an extra 50 or so pounds on top of that. But it, it, it's not necessarily the weight that gets you. It's the heat because mm. that turnout gear keeps heat energy out from getting to your body so so you don't get burned but it also has a um, moisture barrier as well so it traps your sweat it traps your heat and oh. you just i mean you're so you're nasty by the time you got oh, to the top oh man you're miserable like i they they threw a, a bag of ice on the back of my neck and it was melted within minutes so um, it's basically like doing it in, in heavier mop gear. It's yep. 
that's, it, that's there's it. no it doesn't breathe at all those boots are bigger and they're they're not they're not the most comfortable thing but they're it's just it's just hard to move them around but you know you get used to it um Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I want to thank everybody for supporting me for that and be on the lookout for it next year because I'll be doing it again. Um, and then, oh, yeah, so uh, one other organization I wanted to throw out is called PAVE, Peer Advisors for Veterans Education. Um, I actually did that program while I was attending the University of Akron and getting my associate's degree. Um, what that is is a program of vets who – have been in school for a, a, a little bit of time who are veterans at school and mm-hmm. they help new veterans coming in navigate all the pitfalls and, you know, is also just kind of a friend there for you. Um, yeah, it's college. It's like a nice mentor system. Yeah. Kind of sort of. Um, and you know, we help from everything from your benefits to getting into tutoring to, hey, here's the best way to work your resume, or hey, I have a few contacts over here at this employment center, whatever, da 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 da. But, uh, you know, if your school has it, I highly encourage you to not only take advantage of it, but then once you're a veteran in college, um, I highly encourage you to sign up to help other veterans out because not only do you get the satisfaction of helping other vets uh, have a leg up, but you get paid. And it's non-taxable. Oh, so nice. That's tight. that's a well, We always like that. Oh yeah. So. <laughs> All right, gents. Well, thanks again. Like I said, thanks for coming on. And uh, for everyone that's out there, you can check out my page at jkramergraphics.com and my website, or that's my website. My Instagram page is at jkramergraphics. I actually just had just over. I'm at ten thousand followers now, nice. uh, which is cool. And on the YouTube page, the new YouTube page, there's like I have over a hundred hours of content on there, which is blowing my own mind that I've even done this for this long. So. Uh, I appreciate you guys. This is the second time both of you guys have been on and, and taking the time out of your day and your lives to come on and explain some of the stuff to people so that they can understand what the real world is like in the, or like the real military is like, or what being a firefighter is like, you know, outside of what you hear on TV or in the movies and, you know, stuff like that. So, um, I know it's going to be a good benefit for everyone. So yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. So everyone have a good day. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.